0: Northern Football
1: Podcast with Peter Galindo and Thomas Neff. Yes, it's episode 93 of the Northern Football Podcast. I'm Peter Galindo. He is Alexander Gongay-Ruzik. No Thomas Neff this week and perhaps for the next couple of weeks. I'll explain why in a bit, but we are joined by a temporary replacement, a, an impact substitute, as it were, in uh, Ben Steiner, who also just so happens to live in the very apartment I'm recording in. I don't think that's a coincidence. Uh, ben, Welcome. First of all,
2: very happy to be here. Uh, I know that uh, Alex has another podcast with Sam Rowan. So in some ways, you can call me the, the third sub in this case. Uh, oh, so, I mean, free promotion. Uh, I'm, I'm always one for a pun. So we'll, we'll, go, we'll go with that. I'll be the third sub on the Northern Football Podcast.
1: Excellent. Alex, we are cooking some barilla as part of our NFP cooking show and soccer show collaboration.
3: Yes, every week it's a new recipe. And just today I felt like doing the pride of Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, a good birria taco inspired by Tio Tony. If you know Tio Tony out in Puerto Vallarta, that is, you You have an elite palate. So shout out to Uncle Tony and shout out to the birria that will hopefully uh, taste great.
1: Yes, we are waiting anxiously for that. So to those who are wondering where Thomas is, it, nothing to worry about. He's just got a lot on his plate right now. So we felt it best that maybe he takes the next few weeks off just to figure that out. And then he'll be back sometime very soon. So until then, Ben is going to replace him As co-host and we are looking forward to seeing what he can do. Perhaps he'll be our Ismail Kone equivalent for this podcast. So uh, yeah, Ben, just take it away. We got a lot to discuss. Just a couple hours after the release of the Canadian men's
2: national team roster for the match coming up against Bahrain. And just a disclaimer, we're recording this as a separate session to the rest of the podcast as well This is not the Canadian World Cup roster. I know that there's a lot of questions about why wasn't Eshtakio in the roster. Where's Davies? Where's David? The only non-MLS-based player in this is Liam Fraser from the Belgian Second Division. And we'll start there. Welcome back into the podcast, guys. Liam Fraser, Belgian Second Division, only non-MLS player. It's a very MLS-heavy roster. Initial reactions to the Canadian men's national team roster for this match against Bahrain.
1: There were a lot, and I'm sure we're going to get into all of it, but you know, for me, being now a midfield convert, thanks to one Alexander Gongay-Ruzik, the first thing that stood out to me was that there were six midfielders in the squad and very few primary wingers, if you want to count Raheem Edwards in that category and what have you. So when I saw the squad, I thought, okay, I need to ask John Herman about midfield trios, because very clearly this indicates that he's probably going to shift to that for two reasons. One preparation ahead of the world cup and two to help the players build fitness who need it like jonathan osorio mark anthony k so he did end up confirming to me
0: that this is going to be the case i think when we've 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 operated peter we've we've operated at times in a sort of five three two we we've operated with a a three box three or we've operated in a four four two that Sort of morphs into a, a three-box three or three diamond. You know, we, we've we've definitely modified where times we've had three midfielders in there operating around um, our structure. Uh, so I think I think we've you know that tactical flexibility and fluidity gives us the opportunities to do that for the Bahrain game. Uh, there may be opportunity to to play with more of a, a midfield presence because, as you can see, there's a lot of midfielders in that in that team. So I think the, the the short answer is yes that there's probably going to be more midfielders playing in this team. But if you look at the the sort of longer term, it's about putting the best players on the field. Elsewhere,
1: it was also. Curious to see the center back call ups here because it, it's great to see the likes of Lucas McNaughton getting rewarded for what was a pretty decent first season in MLS and stepping up to that level. The fact Joel Waterman's back, not a surprise. Daniil Henry getting in, also not a surprise. He was hurt for the last window, which is why he wasn't included in September. But I think it's pretty clear that he is going to end up starting here. He's been the direct Steven Vittoria replacement, and it was also great to see John Herman's answer on that. We'll get into that later, I'm sure. Um, and the fact that Lucas Cavallini is probably going to be earmarked here for some pretty significant minutes is also a positive because people forget he did have a pretty good season in Vancouver, one of his best of his career. So it'll be intriguing to see how he does there.
3: I think this was a pretty no-brainer squad, to be honest. Like, there weren't many surprises, and I think that's good. I think this is a good crop of MLS guys that deserve a look. Eight Montreal guys in particular is the headline, which is deserved, given how good they were uh, this season. You know, you look at most of these names, it's as expected. It's great to see Lucas McNaughton get a shout after a great season, even if he his chances of making the World Cup uh, you know are are slim at this rate unless an injury happens it's good to just get a look at him because I think someone long term to look at and uh, you look at a few other names you know Raheem Edwards after great end of the season it's good to see him slot in matchish I think it's someone who's long overdue and it's just maybe depth in front of him I think he's someone based on his vers- versatility and how he sees the game could be someone that's very slept on long term for for where he fits in Uh, You know, Jacob Schaffelberg as well after a great season, Jade Nelson, you know, a lot of promise, a lot of potential between those names. You you do like that mix of, there's about 10 guys I think in this squad who are going to be in Qatar. And I think that's fair. That's expected. This camp was for them, but it was always going to be interesting to see how they rounded it off. And I think they did pick a good mix. I mean, as we'll touch on, I'm surprised there's not maybe one or two CPLers just because some of them were in good form. You do wonder if it would be worth it just to round off the squad, maybe throw a bone. You know, I think of two guys just off the top of my head. I mean, we're going to talk about it, but say like a Sean Ray or a Krifa Yao guys who are young, who are going to have... You know, long term future, I'm surprised I don't maybe see one of them in the squad, although, you know, especially you see the likes of Nelson and Schaffelberg. And the last thing I've noted, you know, I've noted Peter touched on the midfield be great to see my my fellow midfield enthusiast, uh, you know, stepping up to the plate there. You I mean, also a couple center backs, wing backs, one area of the roster I'm surprised is striker because uh, I mean, obviously I didn't get a chance to ask John Herdman anything, but one of my alternate questions I was going to ask about midfield transitions should I have gotten the chance? But as a backup, I was do the forward situation is interesting for Canada. Jonathan David playing like a top five striker in the world right now, not an issue. But after that, E.K. Ugbo fighting for his life right now with Tua in terms of minutes. Kyle Laren finally back after you know a hiatus. But even then, he's short on minutes. Lucas Cavalini's short on minutes. I am just surprised that the next name called up was Ayo Akinola. I do wonder, like, Atesha Wakandeli was in decent form. I wonder how conversations were there. Toss St. Ricketts. I mean, maybe I, on his end, he just didn't want to, but I do wonder if you genuinely could have made a call to a guy like that who was in form, who's a veteran, you could add, or even maybe this is where you go CPL route because there's a bunch of intriguing strikers. Like Wubens-Passius just played a CPL final, looked great. You do wonder if a guy like Wubens could have gotten the the call. So maybe that's the last point I do wonder is they're a bit thin up front in terms of number nines in the overall squad and especially in the squad.
1: Yeah, even Masasi de Rosario could have gotten a call up too. Like, I mean, he wouldn't have had to have been capped. That's the beauty of it. So, because I know he has both passports, American and Canadian, but he could have come in for a training stand, reward him for what would have been a strong season. He could have been another option too, just given the dearth of options up there and that's all, where
2: we'll start we'll we'll look at some of the cpl players who, who didn't necessarily crack this roster no cpl players cracking this roster and our first question from mark carvalho at iggyfan fan 2001 are you surprised to see no cpl players make this list
1: I think a little bit, even just one or two, because we even saw for the under 23 qualifiers, what would that have been a couple years ago now? I, God, time really does fly. Um, <laughs> we, we saw Mo Farsi and Diadine Abzi get into the squad. Now, I think injuries had to happen before they both got included, um, but even in some of the Camp Poutine uh, matches. We saw Tristan Borg just get a call up and whatnot. So it's clear that Herman does value CPL players, but given what Alex said about really only having two out and out strikers, it is surprising they didn't give a Paseas or De Rosario an opportunity to you also could have maybe given a couple of wingers, like a Marco Bustos. I know he's training with TFC, but maybe you could have brought him in for, for a few training sessions and what have you. Like it, it would have been the perfect opportunity to have guys like that in there. I'm not complaining, because ultimately, I'm sure Herbman's main focus here is getting those squad regulars from qualifying fit ahead of the World Cup. But you can also reward some of those CPL guys as well.
3: When you mentioned first am. It's good that you mentioned it. I am surprised maybe not to see a Farsi somewhere in the cusp, given how good he was, as well as maybe a Jason Russell Rowe we talk 100%. about number nines. Uh, but to answer the question about CPL, I think let's just say two things. I think off the top, this squad is pretty much close to what you want. And it's perfect. It's a five to eight day camp. You have 22 player or 21 players. I imagine there'll be some other players thrown in so you can properly do the scrimmages and stuff that herdman will want to do you want to keep a tighter group just because you already have so many moving pieces so i get that on on those fronts but i am just surprised that maybe a cpl player didn't get a chance to to taste that environment i do you know you, you even if you're herdman you could have maybe just given that chance, but like, look like you're probably not going to make the squad this time around and has on his plate in terms of injuries in terms of still whittling down this 26 man squad. I'm also not surprised. So uh, in the end, I think this squad is pretty much close to what we expect. And there's a lot of good choices. Okay. You wonder maybe at some of the number nine or does a Russell row or does a Farsi, but other than that, those are just more, that's just more us. I'd say being like, okay, I'd love to see these guys get a look. I'd love to show that they're being rewarded, but overall, uh, the squad is is fair. So unfortunate for the CPL players. But I, I mean, again, I I hope and I think surely Canada is going to host a January camp this year anyway. So they have such a big year ahead of them in terms of Nations League and Gold Cup, which, you know, obviously going to the World Cup is very important for many reasons, but uh, arguably in terms of uh, what their goals are in CONCACAF, you could argue those two tournaments are even bigger. So I imagine that They'll, they'll have a January camp and uh, maybe then we'll see some of those uh, those guys get a closer look, given that those squads tend to be massive.
2: And I do think the CPL probably should have gotten a look here because you're only going to be really relying on the players that you, you want to get fit in terms of the, those heading to the World Cup. I think anywhere sort of between 10 and 14 on this roster for Bahrain are going to be heading to Qatar. So why couldn't you give a a guy like Sean Raya a look, winning the U21 player of the year, showing quality throughout his CPL season with Valor and then he's going to be in the Montreal system as well and of course Montreal has 32% or something like that of the Canadian national team in this call up so I think he probably could have potentially been a call up and that's where we'll go next from Vince Alvarado at Vince by demand if you guys had to pick two CPL players and we all have to pick different players for this camp who would it be and why and for me I'll start with Sean Ray under 21 player of the year He's going to be a part of Montreal, especially with Jordi Mihailovic moving on. And then I'll also go with Brett Levi's. Now, he's not exactly a player for the future for the Canadian men's national team, but he led the league in interceptions with 52. He was consistent for Valor, and he's not going to make a tar. He's not going to be getting regular Canadian national team call-ups. But he's the kind of guy that I think could add maybe a bit of character aspect to guide some of the younger players. And when you look at this roster, you have a lot of players who have taken similar pathways, including, and I know people will will, will push me for this, including three players who have come through the Canadian University system and Mark Anthony Kay, Lucas McNaughton from the University of Toronto, and Joel Waterman from Trinity Western University. And so yeah, you had Brett Levis. He's come through a similar developmental pathway, of course. He's he's come through the CPL. He had a stint with the Whitecaps, but he also came through the University of Saskatchewan. So it's just a guy who can sort of lead those players. Of course, Kay is going to lead them, but I think it could be a, a bit of a stepping stone for a guy like Joel Waterman, for a guy like Lucas McNaughton, just to sort of have that that veteran leadership, even though he's not necessarily going to play a role for the Canadian men's national team going forward.
1: Yeah, and I mean they need left backs, so. Could have been a decent option to have, even just in camp for sparring purposes and scrimmaging purposes. For me, big shocker here, I'm going to go Karifa Yao as one of my players. Um, and the reason for that is, like Ben mentioned with Sean Rhea. He's going to be in the Montreal squad next season. He's had a terrific year for Cavalry. He can play on the right side of the defense. He can center a back three. He's very dominant in the air. And he knows how to pick out a long ball. So I think there would have been a a, a few possibilities there to have him in. And then my second one, I was torn between Paceas and De Rosario. I ultimately went Paceas. The reason for that is... If you don't have an Ike Ugbo-like striker in this camp, Paseas is your closest replica to getting that in the CPL because he's so good at making runs off the the shoulder of that last defender. He has a knack for getting in really good scoring positions, scoring in a variety of ways too, with his head, bicycle kicks, side volleys, uh, just with his left or right foot. So... For me it would have been a pretty logical replacement for ugbo in this camp and for this game to have a pasillas like striker up there
3: i mean surprise surprise peter picked my number one choice and then my number two choice so a good thing i've prepared for such uh contingencies and looked at some Gotta other I, I always uh will have to be prepared so i mean in terms of other choices that uh, I'd go for, I think I'm gonna go Blue tabla. I think just given his familiarity with the the Canadian squad, I think that Canada, you know, there's a lack of natural wingers in this squad, interestingly, uh, enough. So you know, a guy like Blue tabla, what I've found most fascinating about his season is how much better he's gotten defensively. And I think that is a big difference maker. And I think mm-hmm. that sort of commitment he's shown to the defensive side of his game, because the talent's always been there. Again, he's a Bar- former Barcelona player. He's done his, you know, well at the MLS level, but now he's finally started to to add the sort of intangibles that makes a big difference. So I think a guy like Blue Tabla, seeing how he, uh, you know, would look now in this system, I think would be fascinating. And then, you know, from there, uh, a lot of great choices, uh, otherwise that you you guys brought up. So I'm just gonna go uh, for a boring answer, just based on the number nine. Uh, I'd say just yeah, go for Di Rosario. I think he certainly you know deserves a, a shot based on the unique profile he brings in the number nine in Canada. Certainly, uh, you know you can never have too many number nines, especially those who who are of that mold that he is, which is you know he can drop deep, he can head balls in the box. He's he's kind of like a, a, an all around, all encompassing number. Nine that we don't often see. I mean, guys these days tend to be specialists, but uh are, you know, De D- Rosario's so good at so many things. So I just think, given a Canada's number nine uh, situation, I think I'll go for him uh, as, a, as a potential option.
2: And moving on to a few other questions from at Toronto Maple FC2. Why did Jaquil Marsh Rudy and the CPL guys miss out? Why is Liam Fraser included? And do guys like Liam Fraser, Raheem Edwards, ZBG actually have a chance to make the World Cup? squad based off their performance in this camp
1: well in the cpl guys we have answered i I suppose um marshall ruddy that is the intriguing one for me because he can play as a fullback he can play as a winger he could maybe do a job as an eight but he also hasn't played a whole lot recently. Whereas Jaden Nelson, at least when he was filling in for Marc-Anthony K when he was injured, played pretty well in that hybrid eight slash winger role, kind of helping protect the left flank whenever Lorenzo Insigne would push forward and Domenico Crescito would push forward. So fair enough for him to get called up. Fraser was the surprise just because the Belgian second division is going to play right through the World Cup. And so he's going to be missing matches for this. It probably goes to show you, I guess, how accommodating that Dainza is for this request because he is a regular starter there. So for for them to let him go, I think is pretty significant. Um, And and I guess just a guy who's been leaned on a lot by Herman in in recent camps. He wants some familiarity in the midfield, I'm sure, to, to try out different things because without Istakia, without Hutchinson you need another deep lying midfielder in there so i'm sure that's probably his his thinking in that regard in terms of the edwards the brogyars the the frasers making the world cup squad i think for everybody bar maybe edwards it's going to be a bit tough just because there's quite a bit of depth there so t- to me i think most of those mls guys in there you're, you're pretty much going to know who's going to get in and, and, and who isn't. And I think Brogi are just because there's so much depth on the right side for Fraser because there's so much depth in the midfield are probably going to end up being the odd ones out here. But Edwards has a shot just because he could be a pretty decent replacement for an Atakubi type player.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, in terms of, you know, Jaquil Marshall, Rudy missing out, I think it's just kind of a reflection of where he is in terms of just finding that natural position. I mean, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, there being a lot of depth at right back and you think of guys like Mo Farsi missing out. I think a guy like Mo Farsi based on the season he's had might, uh, you know, have gotten a look at right back over him. I think Marshall Rudy, I would have liked to see him get a a look on the wing, but I think for him just, you know, be important next year to find minutes, find a position uh, and go from there. Um, You know, in terms of guys on the cusp, I think for most of these guys to be realistic, beyond the guys who I think we know are gonna be in the roster, it's gonna come down to injuries. If you're gonna be you know perfectly honest, it's a guy like a James Pantamas, great end of the season. It's not gonna happen unless there's an injury. Look at Lucas McNaughton, Zachary Brogiar, especially at that right back position. Uh, you know, you look at some of those guys. I think the ones who could genuinely still earn a spot in on merit, I think it's Raheem Edwards, just given Canada's left back questions. Like, I think if he's finds a way there, I just think given where is Alfonso Davies going to play, where's Sam Adekuk be going to play, even because he might be, you know, have a big burden on his side. Raheem Edwards still has a chance to prove that he could slot in at left back uh, because of that. And, you know, otherwise pretty much. Yeah. I think that most of the other guys, it's going to come down to to, to injuries just because every other position is at least too deep on the field and left back is the only one where it is. And I think purely because of those numbers, uh, you know that that gives Raheem Edwards a shot and maybe by extension that also does J- give Jacob Schaffelberg uh, a shot just given that he's been so versatile for Nashville and maybe if Davies ends up playing a bit deeper that then opens up a spot higher up the pitch although at the same time given Corbianu given Kuliosho given all those options that does make things tough for Schaffelberg so to answer the second question I think Edwards and borderline Schaffelberg are the ones who can really still win a spot based off of you know an excellent camp whereas the other guys no matter how good they are it might unfortunately come down to factors outside of their control
2: and a few of the guys who were on the outs of this squad of course Mo Farsi and Jason Russell Rowe with Columbus crew and Columbus crew too uh, but Blue Tabla as well with Atletico Ottawa not getting into the squad uh, and that's the exact question spin at Spinell's can asks thoughts on those players
1: yeah, Tablo, I mean, as Alex rightfully pointed out in, in one of the previous questions, would have been a really good shout to get called up, especially because of his newfound defensive abilities. I actually threw out his radar from the season that just finished, and his pressure regains, his overall pressures were incredibly high, much higher than they were in Montreal, much higher than they were with his odd stint of appearances with Barcelona B and with Almeria when he was on loan there. So that's a a positive thing. And Herman very much values that, as do most coaches. So he would have been a decent shout. Mo Farsi, again, I think it's just because there's so much depth on the right side and it's so solidified that, you know, maybe there's just no point bringing him up now, possibly for the Nations League. He's someone who could get called in, especially if he can make the crew first team in 2023. And then for... Russell Rowe, I mean, he would have been a really good shout as as like a, you know, token call-up, as it were. And I say that term very respectfully because after the season he had an MLS Next Pro, after the strong appearances he had with the first team, I think he would have been a very decent call-up to have here, even just to train. Because the way that he can interpret space and the way that he makes those runs into the box, he's almost your, your complete number nine in a lot of ways because he can play in different roles. And that would be very valuable for someone like Herbman, who, as we have seen throughout this qualifying cycle, has liked to utilize a lone number nine or or a trio up front or two number nines kind of interchanging with each other. So he would have been a nice fit for that.
2: And one of the other players who's of course not in the squad is Kyle Laren. And that's the question from VHD underscore S at VDH underscore S. Did John Herdman request for Kyle Laren to be released from Club Bruges for this game. He's picked up more minutes recently, but not enough in, in VHDS's opinion.
1: I'm sure he would have been interested, but Laren is getting more minutes these days because a couple of players at Bruges have been suspended and or picked up knocks. So that's opened up more opportunities for him. Hence his substitution appearance in the Champions League this week. Hence the appearance off the bench in the league match over the weekend. So at least he's starting to get a few more minutes here, which is going to be valuable. And I'm sure he's going to continue to get, even if it's just 15, 20 minutes here and there, some appearances before that Japan-friendly happens. So I'm sure in a perfect world, if, say, he wasn't playing for Bruges and he was still not making matchday squads, he could have been called up. But I think it would have been pretty difficult to get a player of his caliber, even if he wasn't in the picture, to be released for a camp outside of a FIFA window
3: also does sound like there's potentially a bit of a knock with Kyle Aaron like obviously nothing major but that it does sound like potentially could have led to his exclusion recently and I think the fact that he's come back the last two games and has been thrust in back on the bench and thrown into the Champions League does th- seem to bode well for the last few games before the international break so maybe there's just the reality that maybe a couple of weeks ago that definitely would have been a possibility but given that he's come back and has been thrust in, uh, yeah that probably wasn't going to happen this camp
2: and one of the other players on the on the outs as well asked by at justin underscore l underscore 99 how about christian gutierrez kind of on the outs with the vancouver whitecaps
3: i mean i think uh he'd always obviously be a good shout it's just uh, given that the lack of minutes at that left back position he got you know thrown down to mls next pro i just think you know given that uh, Raheem Edwards is already pushing hard for for that battle it just probably came down to a, a matter of numbers and then and, and left backs in the roster ditto to maybe like a Mo Farsi type situation obviously differences Gutierrez is it's less more you know in his case would be more of okay a reputation uh, a call-up but you know I think still someone that long-term to, to keep an eye on I mean it sounds like with the white caps, he's gonna come back next year uh, which would be huge for him, would be huge for the White Caps, and would be huge for Canada because they need as much left-sided options as they can get. You, you especially look at a guy like how, you know, say Diadine Abzi has been shifted to more of a winger in, in League 2. I think Canada could use as many left backs as they can get because they're so right right side heavy. So I think Gutierrez is going to be one still very young, yeah, which is easy to, to to forget given how much pro experience he has. But just given the this camp and the timeline he was on, it didn't look plausible
2: still very young as well. And yeah, he was kind of on the outs with Fanny Sartini and the White Caps first team, but it does sound as though he is going to be rejoining the White Caps first team. It sounds uh, according to the AFDN podcast hosted by good friend, Michael McCall, that uh, Sartini and Gutierrez have sort of come onto the same page. It might've been something with Gutierrez's mentality sort of mid season. And then of course, injury sort of de- derailed his comeback and he had to go down to the second team and things just weren't, in a fantastic environment this season with the relationship between those two and and Guti's approach to training from what it sounds like. Um, But if he gets back into that Whitecaps first team, I imagine he probably is going to be getting back into the Canadian National team picture. He wasn't used a ton when he was on the Canadian National team roster, but he's still sort of in that picture. I'm sure Herdman's still very aware of him and the situation with the Whitecaps. I imagine Herdman talks to Sartini fairly regularly about the the Canadian players in the Whitecaps camp and so I could see him coming back into the Whitecaps roster especially if is not forced to play in sort of a wingback role because I don't know whether that necessarily suited him when he was with the Whitecaps and so if he is able to play more of a traditional left-back role maybe he can get a little more comfortable play with a little more confidence train with a little more confidence and maybe work his way back into the Canadian national team roster but there's a lot of players on the outs of this national team of course 20 players from major league soccer and that's our final question from at fernandez neil is there anyone missing from this pro mls canadian soccer team
1: i think we rattled through most of the names that we maybe would have liked to have seen but in terms of erroneous errors i can't really think of many others that i would have included maybe one if you want to throw a bit of a surprise in the goalkeeping position Marco Carducci as a third goalkeeper could have been one show but otherwise I can't really have many other gripes with the selection of the roster
2: and a few questions from on the rise at on the rise FC dedicated listener thanks for always tuning in if Daniil Henry has a quality showing in the friendly against Bahrain do you see him on the final squad Personally, I, I would see him on the final squad
1: anyways. 100%. And before we dive into everything, let's just hear this amazing answer from John Herman when he was asked about Daniil Henry by the Athletics' Joshua Cloak.
0: Yeah, I think firstly, he's, he's a good footballer. You know, I think that's the first thing I want to talk about here. I mean, you know, when we asked him to to step up in the U.S. game against Nash, Nashville and and go up against Pfeffek, you know, who's uh, at the time a prolific, prolific centre forward, you know, d- doing well in his club setting. You know, Daniil Henry answered that call when we asked him to go up against Jamaica. away. Um, Daniil Henry answers that call. I mean, he's in the, in the right position, in the right climate with this team and, you know, guys he trusts. And, you know, I think Daniel is a player that can really contribute to, to the identity of this team. Um, he's got, you know, 50, 50 caps internationally. He understands the, the build in to an international game. He understands the feel of games. And what I see is he contributes to the players off the field in ways that I think people don't understand, you know, ways that he has those quiet conversations with, you know, players that maybe going into a match nervous, uh, He's able to assess centre forwards and you know give those golden nuggets to you know centre backs that haven't experienced that type of player. So I think there's a there's a starting point on a profile that he brings, and and no one's got that profile in in you know the group that that we operate with. And then he has a, an experience that over time, as he's matured as a as a <laughs> person. He's definitely been able to transmit an element of leadership to, to the group. I am very
1: glad, first of all, that Joshua asked the question and also with Herdman's answer because it's essentially a carbon copy of what, certainly what Alex and I have been saying throughout the history of the show or at least since Alex has been on the show. I've, you know, obviously carried it on since the inception of it. And it, it goes to show you that There is more than meets the eye for Daniil Henry, but as Herdman said off the top of his answer, he is still a very good defender. He has been thrown in some very tough situations and has done very well in those situations. Jamaica away... The U.S. and Nashville played very well in that game. People seem to forget about that because that was a marquee game. They were able to... Sure, there was maybe like a 10, 15-minute spell. You can maybe even argue throughout the entirety of the first half. The team was a bit shaky, but they did eventually figure it out and got themselves back into the game and pick up a pretty vital result. Henry was at the heart of that. He ends up going to Central America and starting with different center back partners as well, by the way, and does incredibly well in that environment. We can argue whether or not they were challenging for him, but there's a reason why he is leaned upon and probably why he's going to start against Bahrain as well, because he has 50 odd caps for the national team. He is used to playing in this environment for the country and which is also chiefly among them, you can see he puts in the work off the pitch as Herbman touched on there. So all those things put together, the fact that he is a veteran leader in that room means that he is going to Qatar. Not that any of us were surprised by that, but I think that leaves absolutely no doubt that Daniel Henry is going to Qatar and is going to be in that world cup squad.
3: Yeah. yeah I think there's a lot that goes on. He's a very trusted member of the group. Um, He's one of the longest tenured members of the group and he's one that is pretty much universally liked across the board and Herdman kind of touched upon that. Um, obviously, it's tough in terms of his club situation, especially just given how unlucky he's been this year. You start with the the RSL getting fitness and then you sign with LAFC and you're excited and they end up being a deep shield winning team. where You can't get minutes, you get waived, you go back to TFC and you think you're going to play just given their situation, which for whatever reason, it doesn't end up happening. Uh, you know, it's it's obviously tough, and that's something that Herdman touched upon a lot in this in this availability, noting that you know it's a tough battle to, for some of these guys because you know you, especially with this World Cup in particular, like some of these guys went through a lot, and you have to factor like yes, you want as many informed players as you go, but this is a team, right? This is a guy, this is a group of, of guys who've been through a lot, et cetera. And I think with Daniel Henry, he's you know he's kind of like a a, a key. You know, glue that kind of holds a lot of pieces to, together. And I think on the pitch as well, there's you know he's very misunderstood. I think we've very, we've had that that conclusion for for a while. No doubt he's misunderstood in terms of the discipline, in terms of what he brings to the table. he's he's done well when when asked upon. And I think this in this Bahrain game, I have no idea how much he can go. That's why I'm very curious to see, like I seriously do wonder. If maybe we see Joel Waterman get 45, Daniel get 45, just based on, you know, A, giving Waterman a trial. Because I think now with Kennedy's injury, uh, both Joel Waterman and Daniel Henry are going to be there. I think that's pretty much, you know, that Kennedy injury kind of almost not cements that, but makes that a very high possibility. So I think you you will want to see Waterman get that experience. But then also a guy like Daniel Henry will be good to just see him on the pitch. Cause for him, it'll be more just getting him fitness, getting him reps. Cause I mean, let's be honest at the world cup, how much will he play? Not sure. He could play as little as 20 off the bench in a cleanup role, or he could play one game. But I think uh, with Daniel Henry, you know that he's going to go in and and, and play that one game very well as he's done uh, throughout qualifiers. Cause again, I think you look at the overall body work, Central America playing in Nashville, Playing even the Suriname game, you forget games like that, that were so important for Canada uh, in their overall quest. You always put in a shift and, uh, you know, that's all you can ask for.
2: And also from On The Rise, who's the most exciting player to get a call up and to hopefully prove themselves on this stage? And do you see guys like Schaffelberg, Akinola, Schwanier, McNaughton, and even ZBG getting some minutes to prove themselves?
1: For me, it's a tie between Schwanier and Schaffelberg. Because I liked what I've seen from them this year. Schaffelberg, since he's gone to Nashville, has been a real breath of fresh air, just in terms of how he's defended off the ball, how he's been able to get involved on that left side in the final third. I think I wrote about him a couple weeks ago in one of my Canadians abroad roundups, just kind of highlighting all of that if anybody wants to check it out. So I'm glad to see that he did get rewarded with a call up to this camp, even if he doesn't end up playing a minute. I think it's still very well deserved. And then Schwannier, we saw him go from left wing back last year into being a number eight in a double pivot this year at times for Montreal, maybe even sometimes meandering in into the final third in that more advanced role whenever Wilfred Nancy has wanted him to play there. So for me, it's those two. And for Schwannier, it's probably a little overdue, but the fact that there was so much depth on the left side last year probably hurt him. This year, even with the injury, even with the, I don't want to say irregular minutes, but he wasn't as consistent a starter this year compared to last year. I still think he warranted a shout and I'm glad to see that he got it.
3: I don't know how much he has left to prove. So I don't know if this answers the question, but uh, anytime you smell Kona gets a chance to go out and cook these days is also never a bad thing. And maybe this can be the sort of game where he can really step up and cement himself as someone who can not just be a midfielder for, for Canada, but be a leader in the midfield for Canada. So I'll throw his name in as well. Cause I also agree. I think the one most exciting is just Matthew Schoenier. I think this is a John Herdman player. It's just we haven't had a chance to see it. I just think the way he... The one thing that I always find fascinating about, you know, Mathieu Schwaner is when you ask Wilfer you ask anyone about him, it's the way he thinks the game. And that's super underrated. Like the way he, he's had to play like three or four different positions for Montreal the past two years, and he's excelled at each of them. And he's, you can tell on the field he just really thinks the game. And I think... Uh, for for Canada a guy like that is just screams John Herman he brings that that effort so I just would love to see John Herman work with him and see where he sees him I'm curious to see if, like maybe you know is does he see him as a winger does he see him as a midfielder does he see him as a fullback yeah he, ha- he kind of has that blank slate about him because he's so versatile so I think because of that that's why I've got you know my one year you know beyond what he can bring on the pitch is someone that's uh, so exciting uh, based on how he thinks the game and do you see this call-up
2: and quality performances helping some of the younger players earn some quality transfers? That's the final question from at On the Rise FC. I
1: don't think it can hurt. Certainly for guys like Nelson. I don't think they'll end up getting into the games because maybe a, a callback to one of the last questions that On the Rise asked. I don't think many of those players will get a lot of minutes because as we heard from Herdman in September when he was talking about Joel Waterman's call-up and whatnot. He was mentioning the fact that, yeah, he's done well in MLS, but how will he perform against the Alfonso Davies, the Jonathan Davids in those training environments? And John Herman does value that. If you can do well in training, if you perform well in those environments, you're going to be rewarded with minutes. So, as long as that happens, those players will get minutes. But certainly, those national team experiences will help their value, especially for someone like Nelson, who might be trying to get some trials in Europe this offseason because he might see that the opportunities at TFC could be more limited than they were this year. And, And he did play a surprising amount. Bob Bradley seems to rate him, he did make decent progress as a number eight slash winger tweener, but whether he gets those same opportunities next year is still a question mark.
3: Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much a one friendly against Bahrain is going to help players get, you know, noticed. I think anytime you can get into a good national team, especially one that people are uh, keeping an eye on ahead of a a marquee tournament, it, it can help. And I do think maybe, you know, I think Jade Nelson's certainly the shout. He's the the youngest player in this camp, if I'm not mistaken, even beyond Ismail Kone. So, given his how young he is and you know the season he's had with with the TFC, I think if he can get on the field, because I you know you got to remember that he was all the way back in the March of 2021. He was the first call-up when there were some injuries, and he actually was in the squad when Canada beat uh, the likes of Bermuda and whatnot. So if he can uh, go get out in the field, Herdman already knows him. That gives him an edge. Uh, I'm certain he could he could do some damage.
2: We've gone through the lineup, and that gets us to Ryan Burns' question. I expect to see your predicted starting 11s on his desk <laughs> by the end of the day. I don't know if you'll be able to get to his desk, but at least what are your expected starting 11s for this match against Burain?
1: <sighs> okay, let, let's try to tackle this together, because I have a couple of question marks for me, so I'll just take my best stab at it. You guys can plug in whichever replacements you might have. Krepo and Goal, because he's been the designated number two for years now. I imagine they're going he's going to go Johnston, Henry, Miller and then probably Larea, but I'm in between Larea at left back and Edwards at left back. I feel though he's going to want to prioritize regular, so that's why I went with that back four, um, which can then form into a 3 however you see fit of course. We know he's going to go with a trio, so I would imagine it's going to be Let's just throw out Sorio's probably going to start. I imagine Piet's going to start. And just for kicks and just for fun, I'm going to go Ismail Kone, but I would not be shocked if Mark anthony K got in there as well. The wide left player. I'll, I'll go Schaffelberg. I think he can be it. And then up front, Lucas Cavallini. And then this is where I think you guys could probably take your pick.
3: Well, I think I've sorted my roster out. I think it's, a, I'm going to go 3-4-2-1. So kind of similar to what they rocked against C- Qatar. Um, so I think I go Crepo in goal. I go back three. I think in that that back three, I think Johnston's in there. I think just based on Herdman just, just slipping in that he still sees him as a centre-back today. Uh, I see So I see Johnston there at right centre-back. I see Kamal Miller at left centre-back. I'm really sp- split on the Joel Waterman versus Daniel Henry in the sense that I think Daniel Henry will probably start. But also I think given his fitness, I do wonder if they're going to split 45-45. And because of that, I do wonder if it would make sense to give Joel Waterman the start, given his his fitness, given the familiarity with, that he has with the uh, Montreal squad. So I'll say Henry in terms of what I'd actually put money on happening, but I, you know, my projected 11, I'd put Waterman. Uh, that leaves that wing back. You got, I think, Raheem Edwards on the left. Just see, he needs to audition given the situation. Uh, you go on the right, Richie Larea, he needs fitness. So that that balances out well. Midfield double pivot, I think we see Piet and Kay. And then that two up, uh, the two up front, interestingly enough, I'm going to have Kone and Azorio underneath uh you know lucas cavallini so a bit of a different look so that's a lot of midfielders on the pitch from my end i got four midfielders but i think given that kone played that mihailovich role for montreal and azorio is always comfortable playing in that 10 they could i think they could azorio and kone could replicate what uh what davies and laren were to david or what david uh, davies and laren or david were to laren in that qatar game hence the the three four two one
1: and also, worth noting, and I think Herdman likes to do this from, from time to time, he did drop another reference to three box three, to, to a box four and whatnot. Maybe there's there's something to read into there.
2: And from Dan Clark, at DanClark999, who has the most to gain or lose from the list of players called up?
1: The most, I feel like this is almost intertwined, but possibly Daniel Henry um, could be one of those candidates. I think in terms of the most to gain, Jonathan Osorio and Mark Anthony K for sure because they got to build some fitness. The most to lose a possible candidate there, potentially like like a Joel Waterman type. I feel like it, it depends on on if they play though, really. Because if they get in there and they do well, then fair enough. If they don't, then they might end up getting rotated out just because of some of the competition there.
3: Yeah, I think uh, most to gain, there, there's three categories. There's most to gain, lose, most to gain, and then there's those who can go either way. And I think those to go either way to start, I think that's Raheem Edwards. We, You know, at least I stated before why I think that's the case. Joel Waterman, I'll add as well. Not that I'd say he has much to lose, but hey, say he comes in and looks shaky. That's obviously not going to help his case given, you know, the center back. And you look at some of the other guys they want to fill in. So I'll say Waterman and Edwards is most to, to swing either way. I'd say maybe most to lose, if anything, yeah, it would be Daniel Henry. Not again; he's gonna be in the squad, and there's very good reasons for it. I just think, say, he goes out and looks very rusty, that just won't maybe quell some of those concerns or you know worries that 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 some people have. So I think you know, for for Daniel Henry, it's like a even if he goes out and has a ten out of ten game, that's not gonna quell those concerns. And again, that doesn't matter to John Herdman, but if of course, you want. Uh, you know you're going to look at what's going on outside and and the more noise is never great on that front than most again i think anyone who needs fitness is going to gain a lot from this so you know it's going to be good for guys i think especially like a mark anthony k he needs those that's fitness and what's nice about this game where he might have a little more time on the ball this could maybe get him that those those that passing the rhythm that he's you know that he needs back in his game uh so for someone like him say who is you know obviously fitness is a concern but with him it was almost not form but it just felt like he looked off so maybe this is the sort of game he just needs to to get back to to what makes Mark Anthony case so great and what was what made him such a key part of Canon qualifiers so i'd look at him as someone who just maybe has a lot to gain in terms of if he goes out and has a, a dominant performance that can uh, have a big impact
2: well you got to remember the point of this this game this game is a world cup preparation game there's two matches to go or this Canadian team against er, until they take on Belgium to open the world cup. So you're going to be relying on a fairly small group of players who are bound for Qatar and then an even smaller group who are bound to be starting in Qatar. So the guys that we're, we're looking at whether they're younger, can they prove something, stuff like that? Sure. It's a valuable opportunity, but it is a lower ranked opponent. It's an opponent that Canada should beat, if not dominate. And the point of this match is to get in rhythms, to get the fitness, so it's not necessarily a proving ground. It, it, it is something to just get in rhythms before the games really start to, start to matter in two games and you, you've got to start being ready to go against Japan. And our final question from North Van Steve at North Van Steve. If this was an MLS team, would it win an MLS championship? Personally, I'd say no. I don't think the striker depth is there. I don't think Cavalini is a striker that can lead you to an MLS championship.
1: Well, they could certainly make the playoffs, that's for sure, and probably as like a mid-tier seed, like a 4-5 seed possibly. But, I mean, yeah, if you're just going to ride Lucas Cavallini up front, like he could get you like 12 goals, 13 goals, which is fine, but then you're going to need guys like Jonathan Osorio to chip in by committee, Ismail Kone and, and the likes of that. I think they could compete for a title. I don't know if they'd actually win it.
2: Well, you'd have to be concerned about who your your backup striker is. If you're going to be playing Akinola, yeah. he's not going to be leading you to an MLS Cup. Cavallini, very doubtful, and you're going to be missing him for a third of the season on yellow card accumulation and red card. So you need striker depth, especially if you have Lucas Cavallini leading the line.
3: I'd say this one would do very well, because if you look at this, you have 22 players. Um, first of all, you have... 22 domestics, assuming this is a Canadian team. So, first of all, you take your international spots, you weaponize it, and you get a bunch of jam and tam back. Maybe you go after a striker. Yes, I'm taking this question very literally. Then you look in goal. You have Mm. two all-star caliber goalkeepers in Maxime Crepo and Dane Sinclair. You take one, but you take your pick and you ship them out for maybe a striker or some more money or another player in the roster. And then, you you, you know, you, you look at the rest of the squad. There's a lot of value there in terms of guys like your Kones and your Frasers. Uh, You know, your Johnstons, Miller, et cetera, guys who are going to be consistently overperforming their salary, what their salary is. And that saves you money elsewhere. Uh, And you you look at guys like Azorio, who've provided borderline DP impact for for years with TFC. So that's nice. You have a literal DP as well in Cavallini. And then from there, you hope for some uh, young upside from, you know, from the likes of Jaden Nelson, maybe Iowa all in the system uh, takes a step forward and then you take that rest of the money and, and add. But I mean, jokes aside, with this actual team, I'd say this is a team that makes the playoffs, but maybe lacks the big difference to uh, like the big difference maker that you might need in the, the playoffs and not to say they don't, but I just think like. With the DP system, that's always going to be tough when you're going up against some of the MLS DPs, but they do have the defensive depth. Funny to say that about a Canadian team uh, to to make, to do well. MLS Cup,
2: maybe not for this Canadian team if you're just looking at the roster, but there could be an MLS Cup ring going to Bahrain as well. Or Maybe he wouldn't get his ring yet, but Maxime Crapo, of course, MLS Cup on Saturday. And yeah, he could very well be an MLS Cup champion when he, he joins the Canadian team next.
1: Yeah, could be riding a high or on a real low entering this camp. That is the roulette game that he has to play.
2: We'll go over just like initial thoughts on the Canadian Women's National Team roster drop that happened. Janine Becky not called in. She's taking a bit of a break after uh-huh. 50 months of football and some other absences as well. But a few new names as well coming into the Canadian Women's National Team fold.
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, Canada obviously preparing for a very good test down in Brazil. Uh, Another away game for Canada. They've played about 85% of their games on the road this year, which is uh, both unfortunate from a fan standpoint, but certainly great for the players. And uh, it's going to be good at Brazil tests. And for that, they are missing, obviously, some players. I think to start, that's probably the best way to preface uh, Janine Becky. Uh, obviously, taking a break, which honestly I'm, I'm here for. She, uh, it's honestly been longer than 15 months. I was looking. She played the Olympics deep in August, uh, and then she got into Man City with September. Then you go right. back. It's basically been like three seasons with about two months or three months worth of break yeah, across a lot, the board. Man. So. She's out to rest, which is fair. That means she won't be in action until February when Canada convenes again. Dionne Rose remains out with an Achilles injury. That will probably keep her out at least to the April window for being ambitious. Even maybe just leading up to the World Cup. Vanessa Gilles, she's back. Yeah, played this weekend. She, we'll, we'll touch on that in, in a bit, but she uh, is just getting her feet under her, so no reason setting her halfway across the globe. So she stays with Neon. Alicia Chapman had a knock from the last camp, so she'll be fine for the next camp, but after a long season, she gets a rest. And then Simi Awujo, Zoe Burns, uh, they both get you know breaks as well as Jade Rose because they're in school commitments right now, NCAA tournament, school stuff, etc. And then Jade Revere lastly recovering from her Uh, Injury, hip injury that will keep her out Uh, but it sounds like based on Bev Priestman she'll be back in February so obviously those are some big absences I'd say about four World Cup locks almost and then two World Cup bubble players or three World Cup bubble players uh, but obviously some interesting faces. I think, you know, the big one, Gabrielle Carl's back after an, an injury. We see Eveline Vian again, more Claire Solarisi and Chloe Lacasse after some big camps. And then obviously the youngsters, Amanda Allen and Annabelle Chukwu up front. They had some promising U17 World mm-hmm. Cup, so they get a chance to, to be around the, the big team and see what that's like. And then at the back, Ella Ati, a defender, which is, uh, with Vanessa Gillo, that's a chance for another defender to come in, which is uh, always a good show.
1: And then plus you have... Ashley Lawrence coming back in. You have Carl there, of course, who's been to some recent camps. It's almost like the perfect blend of bringing in that fresh blood, but then also having depth and quality. And I think that's the one thing I take away from the roster, is that even though you are missing some players in the short term, you've still got a lot of players who are ready to step up. And that's the one thing I, I like about some of these recent squads that Priestman's announced, is that she's not afraid... To throw in some players who sure they might be on the younger side but they've impressed with the youth teams they've maybe been doing well at school or you know in the regional development programs and she wants to give them a shot and so this is another case of that and it's nice to see and sure maybe the likes of riviere and, and rose might not be back until april at the earliest apparently they're trying to plan a, a home friendly for that window but at the very least, you got capable replacements across the pitch, and you got a lot of players entering this camp, provided they continue down this path in some pretty good form.
2: I mean, and it, I mean, you you look at what these friendlies are for; they're for developing players, bringing the, in that that new stage as well. So you're not going to be calling up your A team all the time because you, you know players like Jade Rose and Jade Revere. You know the the quality that you're getting, and then you know the players that you're missing as well. Like, is mm-hmm. Janine Becky going to be on the outs forever? no she's taking a break she will be in the canadian women's national team when they need when they need her but you want to give these players who've impressed at the youth level a chance because you want to see what they can they can do at the the higher levels because there's not that opportunity when they're playing in canada to test against senior level women and so i mean that just goes back to the fact that Canada needs a league and those opportunities to to allow girls and women to strive in the game domestically but there's, you give these opportunities in these senior camps, you can see how players do. You're not necessarily giving them minutes in games, uh, especially against a team like Brazil, but it, it gives just a, a bit of a look for Bev Priestman, and I mean, you, you look, she's called up 50 players now through, yeah. through her time as the Canadian Women's National Team Manager, so these chances are coming. And when players impress, like Clarissa Laracy, she's not exactly in a top league, uh, in Scotland, but when she scores the goals, she catches the eye eventually. And while she's impressed with Canada so far, sure against weaker opponents, but she's she's making her mark, and she's she's in, in putting herself in the Canadian women's national team conversation. Sort of looking ahead to major tournaments that are coming
0: up.
3: Well, I guess yeah, and just to not bury the lead as well, Christine Sinclair yes. also returning. I feel like that's uh, worth noting. So we get finally a chance to see some Sinclair. Uh, underneath Evelyn Vienne in front of Julia Grosso and Jesse Fleming, which is also huge. great, and ultimately to, to, to lead on that point, I mean uh, the, the nice thing is about all this, you know, the injuries they suck, it, it hurts you, this is a World Cup preparation year, you want as much to your healthy roster, but what's great is that if you're Bev Priestman, you've already got a huge amount of audition tape for the likes of Asimia Wujo, for example, someone who could very well do a di- make a difference Jade Rose, Clara Hilarisi Chloe Lacasse uh, so if we're talking about benefits as well. Uh, obviously, it sucks to miss your regulars, but the one nice thing about this depth is that it's shown through well. It's stepped up, and I think that's going to help Canada's roster uh, selection uh, when it comes to next year.
1: What is also appealing, and I know this has kind of been the case for the last few months too, but it's worth kind of pointing this out. Look at how many players are playing in high-quality leagues, and not just high-quality leagues, but are also playing on the same clubs. Like, there was a match, I believe it was between uh, Rodez and uh, Le Hough, and that featured three Canadians against each other. Like you don't really see that a lot on the men's side just because they're spread all over the place and, and whatnot. But with the women's side, you, you get that benefit of you're playing together every single week or training together every single week and then occasionally playing against each other as well. So then when you come into camp, you got even more camaraderie built and that's also very nice.
2: And mo- moving on to some of the questions that we were asked uh, on Twitter. Always thank you for, to the people who sent in their questions from etching and Colette. What do you think about the three under-17 call-ups
1: uh, over some veterans like Alidu and Victoria Pickett? Well, I think Alex mentioned it there. I can see why someone like Pickett would be appealing because she's been there before. But you have similar midfielders in the squad already. And those under-17 players performed well at the World Cup, despite the results maybe not going Canada's way. So Priestman is rewarding them with call-ups, and that is good to see because if, if there isn't a direct pipeline between the youth teams all the way up to the senior team, then there's almost very little point in kind of giving these players that sort of exposure. And I, I suppose the one benefit, too, in the women's game is when you shine at a young age you are more than likely to get fast-tracked into that first-team picture. So all the more reason why you do well at a tournament that will motivate you, hey, if I do well here, maybe then the senior team will come calling for me in you know a few months or a year or however long.
3: And it's mixed. I think it's great to see the U-17s, first of all. I think there's even a few more that could have gotten a look based on their tournaments, especially some of the BC uh, contingent pro- probably. That's what I'm more familiar with. But they did impress in the games I watched. Uh, but, again, it's always good to see you 17s. I do think, though, one of Alidu or Pickett could have been a shout. Uh, honestly, I would have liked to see more of Alidu, just because I feel like every time she's played Mary Asmin Alidu, that is, she's shown some good things. She's recently getting her feet under her, with in Portugal, scored a goal a couple weeks ago. Otherwise, Victoria Pickett's been excellent in the NWSL as well, a top league. Just because... I get why they aren't maybe in, just because now with the new two double pivot in in midfield, it's Grosso and Fleming's to lose. I think we've come to that point. If you need a third, it's either going to be Sinclair on the attacking side, or it's going to be Quinn on the defensive side. That doesn't leave a lot of room, because obviously Schmidt and Scott will probably be there. I mean, Schmidt had a great season. Scott played in a final. It's just we know they're not starters anymore. But if they're the two backups to Grosso and Fleming, all of a sudden it leaves very little runway for a picket and for uh, an Aladou to get into the squad especially we're not even Simia Wujo so like at this rate she's going to be at the World Cup so unfortunately I think it's in terms of Pickett and, and Aladou and maybe that's why Priestman maybe a bit ahead of the curve was already testing out Pickett at wing back and some other stuff because she wants to get her in the squad but all of a sudden there's a log jam in, in midfield so in that case It's no coincidence that all the youth players that were called up were forwards and defenders, not midfielders, because I think midfield, if anything, might be the most set position on the roster at the World Cup, Cup. that and goalkeeper. Like, it's all the questions are at fullback and forward, because it's centre-back, goalkeeper and midfield are pretty set. Yeah,
2: Yeah, I mean, it's all pretty set, and if you look at sort of the Canadian developmental structure across the board, men's or women's, you're not having enough camps, you're not having enough tournaments even that you're participating in, so you're not getting a look, so you have to fast-track these players through to actually get more looks at them to see what they're doing. And we all remember Jessie Fleming at the 2015 World Cup coming on as a, a young teenager and I- impressing there. And she's never left the national team since then. So those fast-tracked opportunities, they have more of a place, of course, in the women's national team. But they're, they're on the men's national team too. The team's still young. They fast-tracked a lot of players because they weren't having those developmental camps for guys like Jonathan David and Alfonso Davies, of course, coming in after getting a citizenship. But moving on to the domestic game and the Canadian Premier League final, of course, for Jeff FC, for Jeff uh, almost Forge FC if they win it next year, but 3 of 4 now uh, for the team from Hamilton as they beat Atletico Ottawa 2 nothing in Sunday CPL final in front of a record crowd of just under an announced 15,000 at TD Place, and it looked like an exceptional atmosphere. I know you were there, Alex.
3: It was fantastic. Just weekend really of soccer in Ottawa. Shout out to all the Ottawa fans that are listening, because I know there are a fair few, few people did come up and said uh, they're listening to the NFP. So it's great to hear that. Uh, Thank you for that. NFP pe- people are tuning in from all across the country, but especially our beautiful nation's capital. It was sunny. It was it was great. The fans were well out. The CPL awards a great uh, presence of fans as well as the the pub night the day before, and then last night at the game it was just fa- fantastic. Obviously, we're recording the day after the final um it was it was loud it was just fantastic to see the march with flares with smoke some of the pictures that were taken of the march the videos it, it was stunning if this is you know we talk about you know, it's glimpses, again, it's the glimpses of what this Canadian supporter's soccer culture can become, and it was great to see how Ottawa stepped up. The final itself, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about that, but it was just the crowd, the atmosphere, the noise, and a bit unlucky, I guess, that Ottawa. The home team curse continues in the CPL. It's all about the road team doing well, it seems, but uh, Ottawa certainly cannot, uh, just maybe despite the result, they cannot be disappointed about how they showed up because it was a phenomenal crowd.
2: It looked absolutely exceptional, and I mean, Ottawa has been a fantastic addition to the CPL. They came in, of course, with the Island Games, and it was a difficult way to launch that club. But the Fury paved the way and sort of set a bit of a standard for what soccer could be in Ottawa. And of course, when they played the Soccer Bowl, that was in New York. It, NASL was a whole bunch of interesting ways that that league worked when when it was around in its newer iteration. Of course, nineteen seventy nine, the Whitecaps winning the Soccer Bowl and stuff. There was the much more successful version of the NASL before. But Athletic Ottawa, just a fantastic addition to the league, some of their supporters, I've gotten to know quite a few on Twitter and on CPL discords and, and different spaces, and they, they support the domestic game, not just at the CPL level, but all the way down to the U-Sports level and, and throughout the like PLSQ and, and League One Ontario. It's an exceptional dedication to the game that some of their hardcore supporters have. Uh, and Atletico Ottawa, a fantastic addition to the league. I think the partnership with Atletico Madrid has been outstanding. Unfortunate that they couldn't get it done, but I've got a feeling that they'll be a contender for years to come in the CPL. And from Chris Dock's footy does Bobby Smirniotis get the credit or respect that he deserves? Of course, he hasn't won a coach of the year in the CPL, Still. despite three titles to his name.
1: Yeah. Um, just to kind of run through everything that he has won. Four finals appearances, of course, three titles. Um... He has taken them to CONCACAF tournaments pretty much every single year that they've been eligible for, whether that's CONCACAF Champions League or CONCACAF League. Canadian Championship performances, he's gotten them to, what, a semi-final. They got to the final, quote-unquote, in 2020, played in 2022, but regardless. And he still doesn't have a Coach of the Year award. Now, that's not to say that Carlos Gonzalez, who did end up winning the award, of course, did not deserve it. He absolutely deserves that award, just taking... Atleti from worst to first got into a final and completely changed the outlook of that of that club. But when you look at the work that Smirniotis has done over the last few years, he has successfully embedded new players into this team because this is probably the first major rebuild of the squad, I suppose, that he's kind of gone through and he was able to do it with flying colors. Because... Yes, okay, he was there last year, but this year Ruben Spasius asserts himself as the number one go-to starter up front. He gets him into the team. Alessandro Hojabarpour gets settled into the midfield. Um, Half the defense pretty much changed from last year to this year, and he was rotating guys in and out all season from Maliko ovalavi Balewu to Daniel Crutzen to whoever you really want to name in there. And then he's rotated systems all season and sometimes in-game, and he's one of the best tacticians in-game that I have seen in quite some time, at least in the Canadian game, and we saw it again in this final. um, The the changes he made completely shut down Ottawa's momentum. They really did not look, maybe other than Jensen's chance, sort of midway through the second half, I can't really think of another clear-cut opportunity that Ottawa was able to generate. And it's a testament to the work that Smyrniotis has done for the last four seasons now.
3: I mean, I'd say don't get fooled by the narrative-based awards. Just because the coach of the year is always going to be the best story. It's not necessarily best coach. It's just going to be you look at the standings and you give it out every year. And that's not that's you know that's a boring award all of a sudden. So I'd say don't be fooled by that. I think like like Bobby Smirnoff just said this weekend. He already sleeps comfortably because he had two North Star Shields <laughs> over his wall. Now that he has three. I'm sure he sleeps comfortable and he should. He is an excellent coach. I think what's most impressive about Ford is like you mentioned, Peter. The rotation of the squad, how he's you know new players come in from across the league, they adapt to the style. You Alexander Acinoni you know, jansen you shove him in at center back. He there's such a defined style that you can do that, and he'll become a defender of the year winner. Like you can put players in at different positions, they shine. That's the hallmark of a good system, and it's fun. How many teams around the world are going into an opponent territory where they have a fearsome defense, fifteen thousand loud fans screaming, them, and then they just dominate possession, play their way, and win two nothing. That's dominant that's great football and Bobby you notice uh, he certainly I think he deser- he gets the respect he deserves uh, and, and regard and especially so.
1: This is such a tactical nerd thing to say the way they were defending off the ball was a joy to watch. And that's like a coach's... seven
3: behind the ball every time. That was, was a coach's
1: phenomenal. wet dream, just watching them shut down. Well, you guys are laughing, but I'm serious. Coaches love that shit. They do. They love seeing disciplined defenses because they train so hard to perfect that in training. So when you see it come to fruition, especially in a game of that magnitude, of course it's going to get you maybe just a little bit excited, maybe not quite that excited, but certainly... You're jubilant about what you're seeing.
3: Well, it's funny that you mentioned that. There's a lot of tactical nuances. And one that we noticed up there in the, the press box is, like the way in the first half that, you know, Bobby put pressure on that right side of Ottawa, which was always with the cost of having to fly forward with Carl Hayworth. He was trying to capitalize on the confusion. So he had Ashton Morgan stay up. It was just yep. like go, uh, and then Rezart-Rama was playing as a center back, and it kind of threw Otto off because they had to defend the left side. Second half, Bobby pulled back Morgan, and then all of a sudden Otto was a bit confused, like, well, where did he go? And They kind of got thrown off shape, so again, Bobby Smirner is always the master of these little changes yeah. you'll notice in games. He'll so tweak the midfield, them. he'll tweak the front line, like in the first half, Schwanier was playing as a wing back. Second half, he was inverted, and he scored while he was inverted. So those are the little changes that Forges just, uh, they, 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 they do differently, and they do well. And I
2: mean, one of the Forge players that has played an integral role all, all the way from the first season, forever first, still with the club, Tristan Borges. He went overseas, didn't exactly work out in Belgium, comes back, not exactly the player he was. I know Alex wrote a feature on that and how he was sort of settling back into the Canadian Premier League and sort of finding his new role. But what's the next step for him? Because he's, he's, won, he's won what he can win and he's done what he can do in the CPL. And that's the question from at IggyFan2001, Mark Carvalho. What's next for Tristan Borges? I know losing a player of his quality would not be good for the CPL, but one of the missions of the league is to be a launching point for good young Canadian players. To me, it seems like there's not much more he can accomplish in the CPL.
1: That is true, but I honestly don't know what happens with Borges this offseason because he's such a hot and cold player when I watch him. And what I mean by that is... He doesn't have the stamina, really, to get past the hour mark regularly, which I think is a really big deterrent for a lot of clubs. And even then, he does drift in and out of games a lot. And I think that's one of the reasons why he didn't get a whole lot of chances at Leuven. I know the pandemic sort of halted his momentum because he was getting minutes right when he first got there. The pandemic cancels the season. The very next year comes comes up. The coach changes he doesn't really put him in favor same with a few other guys and then he gets relegated to the reserves and doesn't play that's not going to help but i do think that that did play into it i think a next logical step if he were to leave the cpl provided there was interest there because i know that sometimes international roster spots come into play at least in in one of the leagues but usl maybe mls next pro um you see a bit of a step up in quality across the squads at least in usl you get a bump in pay, so there's a little bit of financial motivation there. And see if you can shine outside the Forge bubble. I have my doubts that he could, probably could, given those deficiencies. But now is the time to try to 24 years old, because he isn't getting any younger, obviously.
3: Well, I'd say I think this is a good time to move up, because while, you know, obviously there are uh, certain deficiencies with this game, I also think there's, he's shown a lot of maturity over this last year in particular. Because I think the first year he came in, he was the guy. He was scoring goals, It was everything was going great He won a golden booties, the MVP, makes the move Everything was going for him And then now that he faced this adversity He had to come back CPL I think the last two years in particular He's really had to refine his game Because he's even come back to a CPL that's evolved from that first year And one where he can't go around and be the guy Even his team, you look at like how deep the team is around him And what I've noticed about Borges' Uh, this season is he found a way to stay in the lineup When it wasn't always easy at the beginning of the year Just do how do he's matured uh, defensively How he's adapted to different roles He's more comfortable defending He's more comfortable doing the little things So yes, there are some things in terms of Okay, he can be a little left foot dominant He can drift in and out of games I have noticed a, a, an uptick on the defensive war crate, right? an update, an uptick on how he's able to stay engaged in games more, which I think are little details that show the maturity in his game and could indicate that he's maybe ready to make a step up because the talent's always going to be there. I don't think you can, you know, you... You can you, you question the talent. You don't forget how to score 12 goals no, overnight either, and I think those little details might be a better equipped. Say he goes back to Livin' because he still is technically on loan if I'm not mistaken uh, so that if he goes back and gives it a go maybe that's the sort of things in his game that Levin wanted to see from him and uh, will maybe allow him to to get a shot
1: to confirm he no longer is he was actually permanently bought back by Forge Um, so yeah
3: well then we'll see where he ends up I mean the opportunity is there and
2: as you said one of the things he's done this season is sort of drop back into a more defensive position become more defensively aware he's not that outright striker that he was banging goals in the first season He's adapted.
1: To yeah, the th- that is the one thing that's going to help him because I don't know how many times Alex and I have mentioned this on the show, but when a forward like Borges, who didn't show a tendency to defend a lot or work hard off the ball, suddenly shows that, coaches are going to give him the benefit of the doubt because at least he's showing that he's contributing in other ways that are contingent to team success. So if there's going to be one thing that helps him, if he leaves that forge bubble, it will be that provided he continues it.
2: Well, it's that, that ability to, to learn from what you do and how the league improves because mm-hmm. other players came into the came into Forge who can play that sort of outright striker role. You look at Woven Paseas and he's playing that guy sort of at, at the front of Forge and yeah. that can't be Tristan Borges anymore. So he learned how to contribute to the team while adjusting his role. Yeah, yeah. 100%. And moving on to David Keisman, what's your reaction to the 15,000 fans showing up to the CPL final? And what will make foreign clubs more interested in investing in the CPL? Could it help the CPL get on more cable TV? Of course, already on Telesoptic.
1: Yes, which is excellent for the league. Um, My immediate reaction was, maybe this is a bit hyperbolic or hot takey, I don't know, but Ottawa's for sure a CPL town now. Um, Now that's provided they keep winning because you're going to see a bit of a decline in attendance no matter the market, maybe Halifax aside, but that might be put to the test in 2023 given the rebuild that's happening there. It also shows what can happen when you have a footprint locally and what that can do for your brand. Because that's why I don't understand the lower mainland in in BC, Um, the the group there, obviously Pacific led with Rob Friend and whatnot, being so focused on marketing to the Vancouver crowd when you have hundreds of thousands in the Valley and the surrounding municipalities that you can target. I don't know if it's just maybe a a location thing, because maybe not a lot of people can locate Langley on a map or something. I don't know. But either way, and I mean, we're all from Vancouver here. I think we kind of know, sometimes we're even like, is Langley there? there?" I can't remember, right? So maybe that's it. But it does show off the potential of the league and what you can do, what can be accomplished when you do everything correctly in that regard. We've seen other Canadian leagues like the CEBL, for example, do a similar sort of plan and it's paid off in markets like edmonton where fc edmonton's now struggling but the stingers are killing it attendance wise that'll help foreign interest for sure because they see the appeal and it could perhaps get games on tv but with the ongoing dispute between rogers and and one soccer and just the fact that media pro does have the rights, that might limit it for the time being but in the future it certainly can help And, and i mean in Canada, the the sports media landscape is is so tight. There's really
2: only three places that it can get on linear television. And that's CBC, who, in full transparency, uh, I I work part time for, and there's there's Sportsnet, who Peter works for, and TSN as well. And none of them have showed a ton of interest in broadcasting the CPL. And one soccer is is showing the showing the game. So it's just a very small Canadian sports media market. And I don't want to get into it too much, but that's that's really what's holding the CPL back from domestic broadcasting. And in terms of sort of Vancouver FC versus Fraser Valley versus Langley, you look at the other teams that play at that facility. Well it's the Vancouver Giants. All Vancouver. It's the Vancouver Bandits, which yes. were rebranded from the Fraser Valley Bandits yes. because they didn't have a good connection to the community. And that's in the CBL. So like they're all Vancouver. There was the Vancouver Stealth. They moved downtown to become the Vancouver Warriors. So, like, it's all Vancouver, so it's not really an anomaly. The
1: the caveat I'll add to that is it's okay if you do more of an effort to appeal to the locals in the area. If you want to call it Vancouver, that's fine, but as long as you're trying to get the locals involved and and you have a footprint on the community, that's fine. But if you're trying to bring in the Vancouver people, that to me is a mistake because we saw what happened with York United. That hasn't really worked out. They had to rebrand already. The owner, you know, Thomas mentioned on the show last week that – he wanted to sell after a year or two, and he was prevented from doing so. So you see the issues that that could cause.
2: And we had a great CPL final this year, and Artur Lichinski, at Artur Lichinski 3, great CPL final. I left TD Place feeling like Atletico Ottawa were deserving finalists, but ran out of magic dust, and Ford were deserving champions, crowning themselves a fide dynasty. What is one thing each team needs to do in the offseason to ensure that we do see a
3: rematch in 2023? First of all, Artur, it was nice to meet you on the weekend. It's always great to chat with listeners, but especially uh, you're a hardcore listener, we always appreciate the questions every week, and we had a great conversation on footy, so just shout out to Artur for that. But as for these two teams, I'd say two vastly different directions. I think for Forge, it's obviously... Bobby Smirnotis ain't going anywhere. I mean, he joked after the game in the press conference that uh, he hopes that Bob Young will have seen enough from him to keep him around. I think <laughs> three ta- three championships in four years and four finals. I think he should be safe. Although we never know in the the football world, maybe uh, who knows? Maybe Barcelona might be looking for a new coach and uh, could call a good old Bobby Smirnotis. Well, oh, Bob- Bobby can move on as well. He's he's done enough in the CPL. He's turned he's turned uh, much like Barcelona was a hotbed of soccer in Catalonia in the early 2010s. Uh, Bobby Smirnotis with the uh, Hamilton. He's done there a great job. But jokes aside, I think for him, it's just all about ensuring complacency doesn't slip in. That's it. That's for, especially for champions. I think this is going to be a big test for them. Cause it's going to be their longest offseason since that first year. Um, just because, like, in that first year, they, yeah. they finished in November and they started in March and then COVID hit. So that was, it would have been, you know, they would have started in April had all gone right. So we're just using that time, like they were training in March. This so is going to be their longest mm-hmm. offseason because, Uh, In 2020, they had to go right into CONCACAF League very late. And then last year, uh, they obviously... I mean, they did have a long off-season from 2020 to 2021, but shortest than the league. Uh, And then they they had this one-month off-season this year at Champions League. They've basically been going nonstop for three years. So I think for them, if they can... What this means is it's going to be great for them to have a break, but it also means complacency, fatigue, mental fatigue might set in. So if you're Bobby, you're going to want to keep your squad engaged. You might lose some players. You're going to have to find replacements. And then from there, yeah, just try to freshen up the squad in certain areas. I think uh, he did a great job of doing that midfield. Abubakar Sissoko and uh, Alessandro Abaport were great signings. Maybe he's going to have to do that on the defensive side of things with Mm -hmm. all the injuries we saw this year. Maybe you look at some other positions on the field. As for Athletico Ottawa, I think for them it's just, I guess, first of all, see who sticks around. so you're definitely going to always lose some players on loan after no. such a strong season. And then from there, uh, I'd say f- let Carlos Gonzalez get a stamp on his team. He's given the benefit of the doubt. What's wild is that he... If he stays. Well, assuming he stays, yes. it just sounds like he's someone who to stay. He didn't pick any of the 23 players, and this is what he got out of them. Let him have a look at the roster pick guys he wants, pick guys he doesn't yeah. want, let him build a project he sounds like someone who wants to keep that defensive identity going, but also bring a new dimension to their attack. And I think if he can find those sorts of things, there's no reason why the new evolution of Atletico Ottawa can't have them anywhere near the final.
1: That's actually a good point too because when was Gonzalez hired? I want to say the end of February. Around early March. Yeah, so he basically had like less than two months to work with that squad and had very little say, as you said, in terms of picking some of those players. So... That might be the one reason to stay another year. Really mold that squad to, to how you want it to play. And maybe giving a couple of those younger players, like uh, Zach Bahus, uh, another chance to, to, to grow a little further. Because he had a pretty decent season this year. Another PLSQ alumni, by the way. They continue to churn out talent
2: it's almost like there should be a team in quebec to cash in on those talents
1: there is I, i actually did hear a rumbling by the way maybe slightly off topic that apparently some prospective owners who want to put a team in quebec city visited um ottawa over the weekend i don't know how much seriousness there is to their desire but the fact that they were there i think does say a lot but going back to Ottawa, I echo all of Alex's sentiments there, especially when it comes to Gonzalez developing his squad. And then for Forge, I, the one thing I'd like to see is what does Smyrniotis do with the likes of Kwasipoku, with Maliko balewu with youngsters like that? Because they had very, very good cameos in there. 700 to 1,200 minutes or so and in and around there that they got this season. But obviously coming in and out of the team, they didn't maybe get as much continuity. But with another year of maybe slightly more consistent minutes, they could possibly play some pretty big roles. And then you have that age-old cliche in, in soccer of just like a new signing because then you're able to get those youngsters some pretty meaningful minutes. So that's the one thing I'd like to see from the Forge perspective.
2: I mean, even Sebastian Costello showed good in, in mm. spurts. This season. I mean, he didn't get many minutes, but he showed fairly well in spurts. Yeah. But moving on to Dan Clark at Dan Clark 999. End of your thoughts on the CANPL. Was 2022 a success? What should the league do in 2023 to continue improving the league both on and off the field? Of course, Mark Noonan now leading yeah. the off the field stuff
1: which is massive because that was a big item checked off the list that they needed and they got it done which is excellent and by all accounts and i know it's early days but he seems like the right guy for the job here we all know the experience he has so he'll be very very valuable as commissioner on the field we definitely saw a lot of quality and parity in the league which is nice to see i know forge got to another final i know they won it but Pacific, I thought they were not going to make the playoffs this year after some of the absences in terms of Taron Campbell and hojapurpur but they got some pretty decent in-house replacements, signed very well in the offseason. Obviously, Kunle Luke is an established player in that team. Johnny Dos Santos does very well. They lose Diaz. I'm sure they're going to find a way to replace him long-term, unless they already think that someone's in-house and Jordan Brown or whoever else. Um, Cavalry, still a very quality team. Valor made massive improvements. We'll see what HFX does next year. York, it's a young team. They started to gain a bit of form towards the end of the season. Maybe we'll see them launch another playoff push. So there's a lot to like this year. But in terms of the stuff we'll have to figure out, Edmonton's the big one. I think we we all know that. I mean, no surprise to anybody. Improving officiating, which is sometimes easier said than done. Um, I know we talked about it on this show, I had nausea many times. And then maybe just from the can PFA point of view, just start engaging in real talks here because I heard from a player who's pretty well established in the league that I wanna say it was about a year ago, maybe could have been two years ago, that he was offered $25,000 by a club, which is very, very, very below market value for him. That was mostly due to budget restraints. He did put that out there. He's like, listen, I don't, you know, hate them for putting out that offer. It's what they could offer me at the time. But if you're offering pretty decent CPL players that level of money, even if it's just one club, that's a major problem that you do have to correct.
3: Yeah, I think it's certainly, if you look back on uh, 2022, lots to be certainly off the field as well. And I think a lot of it's still not sorted ahead of next year. I mean, Edmonton, obviously a big question mark. Uh, but at the same time, like you mentioned, it's good to have a commissioner in place in Mark Noonan to kind of lead the charge. Uh, and then I think from now, it's just kind of sorting out these administrative things because, uh, you know, I think, for example, you're seeing things like 15,000 in Ottawa. You're seeing things like Pacific for the first year selling out their stadium a couple of times with their expansion coming. We see Forge had 7,500 in their playoff game, which was, uh, I think, one of their paid records, at least, because yes. you, you count out the...
1: And then to add to that too, pretty much every club bar, the two obvious anomalies in York and FC Edmonton were averaging in and around 3,500 or more, which is kind of the target attendance figure you want to hit to, I think it was to break even is what you needed to hit in terms of gates. So the fact that all those teams are hitting that barometer is a massive positive.
3: Well, that's it. I think Cavalry broke a record, Pacific broke a record, Forge broke a record, Ottawa broke a record. Halifax. I mean, they they've been breaking records since year one. That's a good thing. I think what that all to say with that is, if that's happening, you got if you can find a way to continue to turn that into more revenue, into more stability, into more fans, into you know, say if you're Pacific, a stadium expansion, those are good things. And then on the field, uh, I think there was a huge step forward this year. I think this year might have been the biggest step forward because there were times this year when the some of the best teams were playing. Like the quality of soccer was actually like. It was good. And what's nice about CPL is that there's a nice you know, balance between attackers and defenders. If we're going to use MLS. like MLS is a great league, but there's just the reality that there's a huge disparity between defenses and attacks due to the DP system. The nice thing is that the the quality of defending this year in the CPL, you look at Ottawa, you look at Forge, you look at Calvary, that also made a huge difference in terms of quality. So There's some good tactical battles where I'm watching, mm-hmm. okay, this is very solid. i think again the cpl has built up a you know good little product on the field in terms of the quality of the you know the the teams the players i think leagues around the world are noticing with all the sales so it's just a matter of taking this growth this is their first full post-pandemic year which is a great sign so to take that keep going and uh you know ride the the off the field stuff as you go but keep capitalizing on what's happening on the field because there's a lot of positives there
2: well it's always going to be complicated with the the off the field stuff but in in terms of on the field, I think next year probably brings even more depth to the teams as well because there's going to be more focus on winning that cash prize and winning that award at the end of the season. We don't know what the trophy is or what it's going to be called, but winning the regular season is going to have so much more importance next year. And that is going to be a focus for clubs because clubs want that that cash that comes comes with winning a title. And if it's equal to the playoffs, then there's going to be maybe not equal focus in terms of like who won the CPL per se, but from a, a boardroom point of view and from maybe not a player's point of view, but at least an executive point of view, like there will be a focus on the regular season. Well, no,
1: but it also does help the player's point of view. Cause back to what I said about the player and how he was offered 25,000, you bring in that extra money, then you will be able to offer players of that ilk a bit more financial incentive to stay with clubs and whatnot. And, Yes, the, the league is doing well with sponsorships, which is going to help bring in more revenues. And CSB, as we know, obviously has all the sponsorship revenue, all the broadcasting revenue in Canadian soccer. So if you take some of that money invested into the CPL clubs, that can help as well. Unlocking any sort of revenue stream can only benefit every tier of the league, really.
2: And moving on to Jesse at Jesse JM, will the success of Karif Yao, Sean Rea, and Jonathan Sirwao at the MLS level, determine if Canadian MLS teams continue using CPL as a viable development path for their top prospects?
1: Well, certainly wouldn't hurt. We do see the likes of Joel Waterman, Mo Farsi, Diadine Abzi, Maury Donor, Arabin Peppel, in different leagues who are having pretty decent levels of success. Certainly in the case of Waterman, the fact he's now getting national team recognition and is starting every week for one of the best defenses in MLS, that does massive, massive knock-on effects for the league and you can add a few more to the list if yao ran Sierra end up establishing first team places in montreal next season now clubs will do what they want to do in terms of how they want to handle their young players and sending them alone to the cpl having them play for their second teams in mls next pro or in montreal's case in plsq montreal will still clearly see it as an option as we know but the more players you can get to succeed elsewhere, obviously the better it's going to do for the league.
2: What I find interesting is what what the white caps are going to do, because you saw them bring yeah. in guys like Lowell Wright, guys like Easton Ongaro, guys who had success in the CPL, bring them into their own system in MLS Next Pro. Are they going to be letting their academy players
3: go off to the CPL?
1: Christian Campania he did go in mid-season, and did very Pacinieri, well. Jim Franco Pacinari left.
3: Owen Yeah. Yep. obviously on the So it's side. already
1: happened. Like I feel like they're almost kind of going with that Montreal model, where Kevin like you Andy have yeah, just keep listing them off. That's right. Um, but they're going to go with that model, I think, of just kind of using both, right? They'll send some guys to the CPL. They'll keep some guys in the second team to have them mature a little more before maybe giving them first-team pictures or loaning them out to the CPL. Like they, they seem to have a very methodical approach these days, which is good to see.
3: Well, I think, again, it comes down to linear development. Some players just need to go play pro minutes, and mm-hmm. some players need to stay in the system and work the system. I think there's great examples of it. I think a guy like... Cameron Habibula, he's there's no doubt his talent, but maybe he just needed some pro minutes, some seasoning. He gets thrown out there, but you look at some other guys who, you know, it's more for them. They 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 have they're a little more physically mature, but they need to learn the system. I think of some of the, the guys that the Whitecaps kept around as Canadians. So I think it's one size. It's not one size fits all, but I am Memories. encouraged by Vancouver and Montreal in particular how they've used it as a loan pathway, and I think. Uh, You know, I think all three Canadian teams are showing an interest in buying players. I mean, um, you know, TFC last uh, season with Lucas McNaughton and Kane Chung. It sounds like, uh, you know, there was word going around um, that, you know, Lucas McNaughton's transfer to TFC last year and how decent he was this year, along with Joel Waterman. has opened up, you know, how some of these teams in MLS view CPL clubs because of that, those two moves. And obviously this week we're seeing Marco Bustos. uh, Sounds like he's going to go on some sort of training trial stint, uh, with TFC, so there's mm-hmm. going to be more, and we're going to hear a lot of that this offseason, especially with saw Kwame Wuwa trial last season. I think each Canadian team would be wise yeah. to, to bring in three to five CPL players to round out their training camp rosters, if not sign a few yes. straight up, I'm just uh, to go off. So I think certainly there's been, the last four years have certainly showed that there is a viable pipeline, both for your team Wanting your players to develop in the league, but also if your team who needs some some depth pieces, it's almost more viable than getting a piece elsewhere in MLS or spending it on a USL player because these CPL players uh, yeah, have proven it and they'll come at a good price.
2: CPL players coming at a good price and they're also not taking up an international spot. I mean, international spots not necessarily meaning as much to Canadian clubs anymore with Canadians being counted as domestic players for Canadian clubs in MLS. But you look at the Whitecaps and it's so many of their academy players have gone on to the CPL. Could they potentially draw a few back to the first team or MLS next pro? It's a complicated situation there.
1: They probably could. I still think they could. Like, as long as they, I, I think, keep an open mind. it's the same with all the other clubs, really. Because, I mean, as we saw with Toronto FC, they brought back Mark anthony Gay after letting him go. But, but I do think they're going to do a much more diligent job of making sure their youngsters are put in positions to succeed, especially if the Philadelphia Union, who is now the template for the Whitecaps, for CF Montreal, if they win MLS Cup, that's only gonna add more justification to their approach. Because as we have seen with Philadelphia, they have slowly but surely built a nice crop of young players, both in their second team in Bethlehem, and then drafting players or assigning young players, what have you. And they might end up winning a league title
2: because of it. Are you saying Inter-Miami is not the way to go? And rumors about signing Messi and stuff, or Scottish Messi now I mean, for the Whitecaps? It,
1: it all depends what what team, mm, you know, and those their those. approach. But <laughs> 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 it, it depends on the team's approach, really. Like, if they want to do what they want to do, like, same with TFC. If you want to pay for the Insignes and the Bernadeskis and the Crescitos and whoever else is out there, then that's your right. But... If you want to give your younger players a chance, there is a clear pathway to do it. And some teams choose not to follow, which is fine, but then others pretend they are following it, but in reality they're not.
2: And speaking of foreign players coming in to play for Canadian clubs and having success, we look at a guy like Ollie Bassett, CPL Player of the Year. We'll Mm -hmm. go over... Sort of the CPL award winners this year, Marco Carducci, goalkeeper of the year. Sean Rea, Canadian under-21 player of the year. Ollie Bassett, of course, the Canadian Premier League player of the year. And the Canadian Premier League C- players player of the year. Has a bit of a mouthful there. Yes. Uh, Alexander achenyoti Johnson, defender of the year. He's been absolutely exceptional. One of the few, I think, only Centurions in the CPL, not yeah. from Canada. Uh, and Carlos Gonzalez, coach of the year. Wero Diaz, still golden boot, even though he left halfway through the season. Yes.
1: And I know uh, Alex and I had a bit of a gripe with Achenote Johnson potentially winning Defender of the Year because we thought that there were probably a couple more deserving candidates when you looked at the overall body of work. But Ashinodi Johnson did have a, a pretty solid season at the end of the day. Like I, I, I'm I not
3: mad about it. I think, honestly, he deserved to be on the, the ballot. I'm just surprised there's no Ottawa left. He deserved,
1: was... he deserved to be on the ballot, but that was shocking because I feel like...
3: The, the fact that Zator and... Uh, got on with York's defensive numbers. It, it, it's yeah. I, I that, feel like that was, was a bit more There it was a bit more of like a heritage vote because he would have should have won a Defender of the Year maybe before. It just felt Easily. like that this year. But I,
1: I do find it weird though that perhaps the justification for not putting Ottawa players on the Defender of the Year list is oh well it was a system based success right? But you could also say the same thing about any other team yeah. really who has a strong defense. So Achinoni Johnson would fall into the same category. So if you're going to nominate him, you got to nominate Espejo, or you got to nominate... I mean, throw out the list of defenders on Atleti that probably deserved a show.
3: Well, hey, maybe uh, something to consider for the CPL going forward when it comes to awards is... We saw the players play the Each player had to vote for three candidates. One, two, three, and it was mm-hmm. ranked by tier. And that ended up being a fascinating vote, I think. Uh, might not hurt for the media. Maybe if it's a smaller group to just have the media vote a 10 a list of one to 10, each vote is worth $1 point to ten points and then they used the system that way because I think it would have just been a more fascinating uh, argument to see how things would have fallen had that been the case but uh, in the end about Akroni Jansen he was fantastic in the final and they won off the back of that so maybe he did get the last laugh in the end over us so give him that
2: well three CPL titles on his wall now just like uh, Bobby Samir but another club coming into the CPL next year Vancouver FC likely to be called uh, coming in in Langley Uh, that announcement coming up on Wednesday
1: yeah and we'll see what happens i guess in terms of the stadium in terms of the, the logo i mean all that stuff right because they've still yet to announce it so finally we're getting some updates because i know a few listeners have been asking us for the last few weeks like hey any vancouver updates or anything out there because it's been crickets for a while i mean we've heard some things off the record but nothing definitive now at least we'll get some sort of answer here
2: well shout out to ben lepka as well uh in that that area an independent journalist there and he noticed that there was a logo registered that's right uh, a registered trademark for vancouver fc and no confirmation if that's the official logo but i would imagine that it's it's pretty close to what we're going to see on 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 wednesday in terms of the announcement for the vancouver fc vancouver cpl fraser valley cpl whatever they end up deciding on uh but cpl continuing to grow is it going to be a top 10 league in the world one day, as Mark Noonan said, to one soccer at halftime in the final?
1: That was a bold, bold, bold take, but I commend him for it because he definitely got attention from people on Twitter at halftime and even after halftime and possibly even today. It can certainly be a top, and I'm going to pull a Paul Barber with the white caps here, but top 25, top 30 <laughs> team, or league in the world, excuse me. I was a little bit of a Freudian slip there. Top 10 is very ambitious. I understand Canada is a desirable place to live. I understand that the league is growing very, very well, considering that they had two pandemic-affected seasons in between the first one and this one. And I guess you could even maybe argue a little bit bleeding into this one at times. But it's a very ambitious comment. But they can certainly be a, a destination league in CONCACAF. I think we've all put it on the show before that they could at least be a top three, four league in CONCACAF.
3: You know, it's, it's one of those where you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. If, I think if you go on that hit and you're saying we you want CPL to be a top 40 league in the world, like why would you say something like that? So yeah. I think for the leadership, from a leadership standpoint, I'm here for that sort of energy. I think you want to push, you want to strive to be a top league, and hey, at least you didn't put a timeline on it. Um, That's maybe, true. Because who knows? <laughs> I mean, to be fair, you, we, it, one thing you could point to to, to suggest is MLS. Would you argue it's a top 10 league in the world? Partially I'd say no, but I've seen some people say the argument that MLS is already a top 10 league. MLS has existed for what, 25? They just celebrated their 25 year anniversary. So you're telling me CPL could be a top 10 league by 2043 with that timeline?
1: You know what? You I mean, never know. The world could be ending soon. Some countries might go underwater and then not have a league to play for. So. Yeah. So what? Hey. <laughs> see Canada looks got, at that point. I got very <laughs> dystopian there. I'm sorry. Yeah.
3: So I'll say, for from a leadership standpoint, I understand the comments. I do also understand it's very bold and uh, could be something that you wear uh, on the face. But you know what? Certainly, uh, from what it sounds like so far under uh, the Mark Newton era, no short of ambition. I think for sometimes as a league, you need that. Obviously, you want yeah. that ambition within reason, but. Obviously, given uh, his experience, he's he's been in some different situations. He's been in MLS. Uh, yes, that's dealt with. Maybe that's what
1: led sure. to the comments.
3: He's dealt with <laughs> his fair share of up and down. So as long as I think he approaches that uh, with the right mentality, that shouldn't be an issue.
2: And going across the Atlantic to the Canucks Abroad section, uh, the Atlantic still at a size where we do have Atlantic and the HFX Wanderers. We haven't gotten to that dystopian level that Peter was talking about. Clearly not much of a fan of Venezia or, or any of the clubs no. uh, near, near the coast. Uh, nope. But Alfonso Davies went the full 90-6 to win for Bayern Munich over Mainz on Saturday. Jonathan David started and somehow couldn't get a goal for Lille in their 1-0 loss to Leon despite five shots, a 0.5 total expected goals, 1.23 expected goals on target and a .24 expected assists. E.K. Ugbo came on the sub for trois for just nine minutes in their wild 4-3 loss to Paris Saint-Germain. Tejon Buchanan went 85 minutes for Club Bruges in their win over Oostend on the weekend. He also started the team's 4-0 loss to Porto in the Champions League midweek. Kyle Lahren made his first appearance in nearly a month in that Usten game, logging around 15 minutes. He was also an unused substitute in the Champions League match. Bruges closes out their group stage campaign against Bayer Leverkusen. Stefan Estakio scored his first Champions League goal in that win over Bruges on Wednesday to help them qualify for the round of 16. He was suspended for Porto's draw with Santa Clara over the weekend. Porto closes out the Champions League group stage versus Atletico Madrid. For probably should have finished first touch, but scored his Champions League goal for the first time. Can't go against him for they any reason on the that. They all, all count the same.
3: same. Veteran move from Ustakio there to stat pad his XG by getting himself two kicks ah. at the can and getting a goal. There the
2: we end. go. Love it. Only those who have Y Scout enjoyed that one. Stephen Vittoria went the distance It's distance in chavezs 5 0 loss to Premier League leaders Benfica on Saturday in the English Championship. Junior Hoylet logged 56 minutes, minutes off the bench for Reading as they lost 2-1 to Burnley on Saturday. Theo Corbiano was an unused substitute for the second consecutive game for Blackpool who beat Coventry City 2-1. Sam Adekubi went the full 90 and Santayispor lost 4-1 to Ankara Gucu in the Turkish Super League. Liam Miller played back-to-back matches for Basel starting last Thursday's 2-2 draw with Zalgiris in the Europa Conference League before starting in the league over the weekend against Young Boys in a 3-1 loss. Milan Borián started Red Star Belgrade's 2-1 win over Transjospore in the Europa League last Thursday and the 2-0 victory versus Kolubara. David Watherspoon made a third straight appearance off the bench for St. Johnstone, logging 15 minutes in a 1-0 win over Kilman Rock on Saturday. From David Anthony at a-miller16, did Liam Fraser's move to the second division in Belgium cost him a spot on the team? He was one of Herdman's favorites. Does this reality secure Watherspoon's spot despite just coming back from a major injury?
1: Well, on Fraser, it clearly didn't help his prospects going to the second division of Belgium because when he first got to Dines, Piet exploded shortly thereafter. Wotherspoon started doing well with his eight caps. I believe that's how many he had before he got hurt for Canada in 2021. I think Fraser will remain an option regardless. And Thomas did report a few weeks ago that there was Scottish interest, namely, ironically enough, St. Johnston, before he went to Belgium. So maybe that ends up Coming back up again if he decides to leave. But Walderspoon is probably making the squad regardless of Fraser's club situation because Osorio and Kay, the likes of them, are out of rhythm and he'll fill a need further up the pitch where those two play. So I feel like whatever Fraser's situation was, Walderspoon would have been unaffected by it. But the fact that Fraser is also currently. I don't want to say stagnating, but maybe isn't showing as much progression as you'd like to see. Probably helps Watherspoon a little bit, but not too much.
3: Well, so Watherspoon's always going to have the edge in terms of how he fits the system, how important he is to John Herdman's training culture, etc. He's also come back quite well for St. Johnson. His comeback is defensively engaged. He's made a lot of his passes so far through three games. Getting stuck into a lot of duels, which is a good sign for someone coming in off of a knee injury. And it just feels like Liam Fraser... He, he made a bet on himself. And I think it was, unfortunately, it's the, the flip side of the bet. He thought Dainsey could get that promotion to the first division, and in this instead you kind of get stuck, and next you know, you don't secure a move, and you kind of leave yourself... Not saying, like, you won't, you know, it's not a chance he doesn't make it, but all of a sudden there's options that are ahead of you, like you mentioned, Piet emerging at the number six. It's so deep all of a sudden. It's just kind of left him in a no-man's land. So I think long-term he's still in Canada's plans. I just think for the World Cup, there's enough number sixes now that have you know emerged and that are there and uh, in midfield and they might have some tough decisions to make in midfield or, or no sorry out in the wing etc so it's just unfortunate for uh, for Liam Fraser as that means I mean we know what he can bring he's, even this year uh we haven't you know, maybe talked about him as much he's still averaging over 85 percent of his passes he's getting a lot of good long passes he's winning you know over 50 percent of his duels which you always want for a midfielder he has a high interception rate etc etc uh, but, you know, just unfortunately, you look at the level, you look at the position he's up against. It's just one of those where you can only have uh, so many number sixes in your lineup. And a guy like Weatherspoon, even if this wasn't, you know, even if Weatherspoon wasn't playing as well, Canada needs more eights, they need more tens. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so the, either he would have had that edge, or maybe you look at another player playing that position, might have had that edge, which uh, hurts Fraser, unfortunately.
2: Victor Letourri received his first appearance since September in a narrow 2-1 loss to Hart. Letourri had 34 minutes, completed 23 of 24 passes, two interceptions, and three recoveries. Scott Kennedy suffered a shoulder injury for Jan Regensburg over the weekend and will be out for the next few months, ruling him out of the World Cup. Derek Cornelius had a solid game for Panathalikos, going 90 minutes in a 1-1 draw with Lonikos in the Greek Super League. At KenMNT Opinions, at Sad Since 86 you can only pick one for Qatar, Joel Waterman or Derek Cornelius.
1: Well, Cornelius is probably in now because of Scott Kennedy's injury, and I think that's more than fair. And it obviously sucks immensely for Kennedy, but Kennedy's performances for Canada have kept Cornelius on the fringes up until now. And I do think Cornelius, to me at least, I don't know what you think, Alex or Ben, but he has better potential than Kennedy because of his improved distribution, his calmness in those situations under pressure the growth with his defensive positioning he's just a better all-around defender these days whereas with kennedy as we know the hips don't lie alex so left-footed defender for left-footed defender there isn't a drop-off in quality either if there is a silver lining with this injury it's that you lost a player in a position where you have a lot of depth still so that would be the one thing but like for like cornelius or waterman i probably still slightly take cornelius because as i said probably a little more reliable defensively than Waterman would be because Waterman does like to press up aggressively and sometimes misses his mark from time to time. But Cornelius, I guess, is prone to that too. I just feel like, just given what Cornelius has done in a pretty solid European league and the trajectory he's on, he might be the guy who I would probably choose out of the two.
3: Again, unfortunate for Scott Kennedy. Hopefully has a safe recovery um but as for the debate i mean i think what kennedy's injury does is guarantees that both cornelius and waterman go yes. to qatar personally but if i were to pick one i just think given canada's needs uh, i think cornelius probably fits the system a little more obviously the left footedness etc so to answer the question i'd say uh, if you had to come down to pick two say yeah i don't know some hot shot dual national plays for some hot shot plays we don't know about comes in and you all of a sudden need only one of them i'd say cornelius has the edge in that regard but uh I'd say it's very close. It really depends what you want. Like Cornelius, like you know, he's gotten a lot better on the ball. His hip movement is very fluid. Uh, he can play in a back four. he can play in a back three. Uh, Waterman, you know, maybe the you know maybe not the fastest guy, but his distribution is phenomenal. He's so good on the ball. Uh, he's comfortable marshalling a back line. They both have their benefits, but I think in the end, based on what Canada needs, Cornelius's benefits uh, probably win that battle.
2: Staying on the back line and staying in Europe, in the Ukrainian Premier League, Car James went the full 90 for Odessa in a loss to Dnipro. Charles-Andreas Brim recorded a brace for FC Eindhoven as they drew 2-2 with Simon Colline and Young PSV. Kolein went 62 minutes for PSV in that one. Maxime Krapo and LAFC have reached their first MLS Cup final against fellow number 1 seed, the Philadelphia Union. After beating Austin in the Western Conference final, Maxime Krapo and, of course, former Whitecaps FC head
3: coach, Mark DeSantos now playing for NMLS Cup. Canadian coach too, so it's actually worth noting that you uh, bring that up. Maybe uh, Mark DeSantos makes his odyssey back to Canada one day, but uh, good for uh, good for Maxim Crepo, I think, uh, after getting that move to, to LAFC. I mean, they, they needed a goalkeeper, and uh, yes, they got a good one, and now he gets a chance to compete for... Uh, for final his third trophy of the year you can't help but uh, be happy for the guy at least maybe if you're not from Vancouver if you're a Whitecaps fan but
2: I do wonder whether if they win the MLS Cup whether Maxime Crapo and Mark Santos go out for some hamburgers just to celebrate <laughs> that, that, that championship
3: I don't know I think they might go something a little more expensive than that for an
1: MLS Cup plan. Wagyu burgers there you go <laughs> that's, that's what we'll cook next week how about that
2: well for anyone from Vancouver rice burgers the those are quite good as well. Anyways, moving on. As for our women's Canadian Canadians abroad, uh, several players were involved in some big matches over the last seven days. Ashley Lawrence went 90 minutes in back-to-back games for PSG, who drew nil-nil with Real Madrid in the Champions League and beat Rams in the league. Kadesha B- B- Buchanan went 90 in Chelsea's massive eight-nil win over Skoder in the Champions League and in a subsequent victory over Aston Villa. Jesse Fleming had 72 minutes and 25 minutes in those matches, respectively. Julia Grosso logged the full 90 for Juventus, who drew 1-1 with Lyon in the Champions League. Then she had an assist in 58 minutes against Fiorentina. Vanessa Giles was an unused substitute in the Champions League for Lyon, but returned from injury and went 63 minutes versus Fleury over the weekend. Marie Levasseur went the full 90 for Fleury. Chloe Lucas had a goal and an assist in a thrilling 3 2 loss to Bayern Munich in the Champions League. Evelyn Vienne scored again, but Christianstadt lost 4 1 to Linköping in Sweden. Gabby Carl also went the full 90 for Christianstadt. In France, Yasmin Hall and Alexandre Lamontagne had 45 minutes and 90 minutes respectively for Rodez with La Montagne scoring. Sourijeka was a late substitute in that game for Le Havre, who won 2-1. Another Canadian at Le Havre, Sadie Sider-Eichenberg, former U Ottawa GG, hasn't really seen much of the pitch this season, but another Name Canadian drop. to keep an eye on. Let's go. Jenna Hellstrom picked up 31 minutes for Dijon in a 1-0 win against Soyo. In the WSL, Shalina Zdorsky started and finished to the 90 for Tottenham in an 8-0 victory against Brighton. Finally, congratulations to Christine Sinclair, Janine Becky, and the Portland Thorns, who won the NWSL title with a 2-0 victory over Desiree Scott's Kansas City Current in the final. Of course, a big shout out to Karina LeBlanc and well. Rianne Wilkinson yeah. as well, uh, managing that team. From Dan Clark, at Dan Clark 999 Christine Sinclair is obviously the greatest of all time in Canadian soccer, but where does she rank among all-time greats
3: worldwide? I mean, surely, she has to be pretty high up there because, I mean, obviously, in the
1: women's game, she's top two, three at worst. She could, I mean, she's probably the best of all time in the women's game. Maybe Abby Wambach could have something to say about that, but yeah, she's outdone Abby Wombach. But this point. oh no, at this point, I, I yes.
3: think, especially, yeah, but, I mean, the only thing she'd be lacking is any sort of World Cup accomplishments. But the gold medal helped a lot, yes. the amount of club accolades she has. I think any if she wants to make it undisputed that canada wins the world cup next year i think it'd be undisputed so i think for women's soccer that's fair for you know amongst you know all soccer as well definitely up there among goats in general yeah i think it's just remarkable maybe it's because we're canadians it's remarkable that someone from burnaby has gone on and just dominated and excelled for as long as she did at her at, at burnaby
1: specifically or just someone from canada I don't know I'm just I'm saying it's, it's
3: kind of cool for a BC kid to say that we've had someone from yeah. Burnaby to look up to and has just been so dominant for so long like she's been doing this for 25 years like that sort of longevity among crazy. you know goats gives her a, a bit of an edge some of the goats even they had they 20-25 years they, they fade out and uh, they, they don't have that longevity so I'd say certainly among, uh, among those she's, she's up there
2: well, her tears at the end of the end of NWSL final as well with that medal around her neck I know a few people on Twitter were talking about, are those retirement tiers? I, I wouldn't think so with the World Cup coming up next year. No,
1: at least another year.
2: Other questions from Shane Wagoner at Wayne Shagoner. We've all been terrified by Kevin De Bruyne highlights with Manchester City, but is defending him in Belgium's attack a slightly simpler task, if still a terrifying proposition?
1: It's one of those cases where planning against him is easier said than done because everybody says, oh, just man-mark him, it'll be fine. I'm like, yeah, but many teams try to man-mark him and he inevitably evades the man-marking and then ends up having an impact in the game. So I I can see where Shane's coming from on the question, but listen, whether he's going to be the focus of everybody's attention or drifting off of everybody's radars, he's still going to be the danger man for Belgium, regardless of what they try to do. As I mentioned last week, in terms of the the man-marking setup, He does have a way of kind of evading that. So it's up to Canada to make sure that the gaps aren't so big that players are aware of where he is at all times if they want to go that route, which I imagine they probably will.
3: Well, the mystery behind Kevin de is that he's the king of the half space, I could arguably say. Just the amount of goals and assists and chances he creates from the half space uh, is remarkable. So I think if you're, you're Canada, if you're any team trying to mark him, you have to figure out what's the best way to stop him from getting in the half space. The thing with the half space... There, no matter what formation you play, you can put yeah. four four two and try to jam the heck out of the field, and you see there's still a half space there. It's just maybe not as big. And Kevin De through his time with Man City, has mastered all sizes of the half space. And I think if you can't either, uh you try your best to, you know, just you go. Okay, you keep your shape, and you have a guy man marking, but that guy man marking is gonna have to be ruthless. It's gonna have to be relentless. He's gonna have to make sure it doesn't break Canada's shape, which is easier said than done, or you have to kind of treat De Bruyne like someone else and maybe cut off his options, but that's a risk because De Bruyne can hurt you in so many ways. Uh, so in reality, I think tactically to, to, to defend him, it's going to come down to a lot of factors. I think you have to supply, cut off his the players he can service, but you also have to make sure he doesn't drift into that half space, and also I think you do have to man-mark him at times. I think the perfect answer might be a bit of all of those questions.
1: Well, easier said than done. At the
2: end of the day, he's the best player well, probably the best player in the world right now, all he needs is a moment. You can man-mark him all you want. You can be the best team in the world, man-mark him all you want. If Sam Adikubi, can man-mark him and shut him down, well, Sam Edekubi is getting him himself a Premier League deal if he can do that. Another question from Clawboat at LFC 5 with Ishmael Kone most likely going to Europe in January. Which club would you like him to join?
1: I would want to see him go to Belgium myself. I think that would be the perfect stepping stone. If he were to go to a top five league, I mean, I, I think that he would really suit Germany myself, but I think Belgium would be the logical choice here.
3: I'd say give him France. I don't know. It's something of, of, that the French league has technically grown a lot recently, uh, you know, on that side of the game. And then you, you look over uh, and just the physicalities. Well, I do want him to, to continue to embrace that physicality that has allowed him to do well. Uh, In MLS, but maybe not the Premier League, just because it can be such a bloodbath. But if maybe if he could get a chance in D-Gun, especially given the language, etc., that could not be that could be a decent little landing spot for him as well.
2: Uh, And moving on to star at Hemalurgy. Is there anything to read it into with Kamal Miller's latest tweet, or is this just phrased ambiguously?
1: I think it was phrased ambiguously. I can understand how that could maybe set some alarms off for people. And I don't think he did it on you know, on accident. I think he kind of wanted to throw some things out there. But um, I think it's just having to do with, like, oh, it was a great season. It has to come to an end, unfortunately, sometime. Um, that's what I think he really meant by it. I don't think there's, like, an imminent move coming. But certainly in the next... Six months or so, then I think we can start to say yeah, he'll end up getting moved. But who knows? If a team comes in in January, I'm sure there's going to be interest in him already. Maybe there is some smoke to that fire. Next question from Mark East. A few weeks ago,
2: your podcast did not have any young TFC players like Kosi Thompson, DeAndre Kerr, Luca Petrasso, even Jaquil Marsh-Rudy and Jayden Nelson making the World Cup squad for 2026. Really? Would they not be ahead of some CPL players the same age?
1: I'm pretty sure we threw Nelson and Marshall Ruddy in our squads. I I could be wrong. If if we are, then they probably will get in there. But, I mean, listen, the likes of Thompson, Kerr, Petrasso, they're all still very raw. You can even say Marshall Ruddy and and Nelson are still very raw in a lot of ways. So, uh, theoretically, if they meet their potential, yes, they get into the 2026 squad, but... As it stands right now, they're not really being put in positions to succeed with TFC. And in Marshall Reddy's case, he might end up leaving as a result. Nelson might also be a candidate too, because we all know he got European interest before the 2022 season as well. It's possible, but, I mean, again, trying to predict a squad four years from now is one of the toughest things you can do because you never know how some young players are going to pan out. We could look like geniuses or look like complete morons the, by that time. They're not extremely
2: young either. like It's not like we're talking about 15 and 16-year-olds with these TFC slash TFC2 players. We're talking about, like, Luca Petrasso, who's 22. Yeah, turning 23 soon. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. Kerr is 23, 24, I want to say, somewhere around there. Coast so Thompson, yeah. 19. Thompson's 19. Thompson's 19. Marshall Ruddy. Nelson is 20 now. So, I mean, like, they're still young for sure, but by this age, they should be starting to get a decent amount of minutes by now.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think, again, with TFC, it's a matter of clear path to minutes. Clear path to minutes in preferred positions and an overall developmental plan. And I think right now, beyond uh, Jaquil, Marshall, Ruddy, and Jaden Nelson, some of those guys, a lot of potential. But uh, where will they'll be at in four years? It's not very clear to see. Um, but, and again, I think that's credit to the overall uh, growth of the development pool of some of these youngsters that have come around, as well as the fact that some guys will still be around. So, again, we might look foolish, we may look like geniuses, the only time will tell.
2: And a question from Lauren Eisen. Hey Ben, what are your predictions for this week's OUA Ontario University Athletics Women's Soccer semifinal games? I know Alex can also chip in on this. Uh, those games are between York University and Queen's University, as well as the University of Ottawa and Western University. All go with Queen's beating York, they won the OUA last season, and Ottawa beating Western. Alex, I know you've commentated on York games with me this season. Uh, you want to pick a couple winners in that?
3: Picking York, just what I've seen from them, is uh, has been good. So I think York can uh, take out a good Queen's team, and I think the other one's tough. Because Western's been so solid as they always are. But Ottawa, you know, they're they're a World Cup winning team. So I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go York. I'm gonna go Ottawa. Ottawa,
2: the 2019 FISU. International University World Cup champions. Anyways, enough of U Sports. I know that's not exactly suiting the fancy of many of our listeners. Uh, but a final question from Mont- Montrealer at Inter Montrealer. Now that the CPL and MLS is over for Canadians, what CPL players could the Canadian MLS team sign for next year? A goalie, a number 10, and a left winger for Montreal? A goalie for TFC? Whole new lineup for the
1: Whitecaps? <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly some defenders could help uh, for the Whitecaps at least. At Amir Divich. Yes, there you go. There's one possibility. Um, in terms of the goalkeeper, I mean, Marco Carducci is probably going to be a hot commodity. Number 10s, wingers, there's a plethora to choose from there. Um, I mean, honestly, you can, I'm sure Tristan Borges will, will get some trials, just speaking of, of players in that position. But, you know, again, it 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 is encouraging to see that the under-21 initiative is kind of paying off in that a lot of these players are getting meaningful minutes in a decent league. And so when they make that transition, if they make that transition to MLS or to MLS Next Pro or to USL, wherever they happen to land, it's not such a drastic change for them. Like even, I wonder if Tristan Borges, let's say he was a couple of years younger than he is now, and he had a couple of years in the CPL and saw the, the development that the CPL has gone through, would he have landed in Europe a little easier? It's pretty possible.
3: And yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see who hops up because I think uh, one thing this year has shown us, there's a lot of Canadian and international talent. We don't maybe talk about it as much because obviously we're focusing on the Canadian side of things, but uh, also some international talent. I mean, a lot of the award winners were internationals. For example, a guy like Ollie Bassett. Could he maybe crack it at a higher level? So if I'm not to answer Montrealer's question, for example, to go to TFC, I think first of all, Marco Carducci is probably an easy answer in goal for them. But they need defenders. Diego Espejo is 20, which I find mind-blowing because he was so good and composed this year for Atletico Ottawa. He's on loan, of course, from Atletico Madrid. But hey, maybe if you could find a way to get Diego Espejo playing in MLS, that wouldn't be the worst signing in the world, of course. If not, you want to go Canadians, guys, like Dominic Sator, Amir Didic, all good shouts. As for Montreal, I mean, left-winger Sean Ray is coming back on loan, so that's not an issue. Goalkeeper, that's a bit of an interesting one. I don't know if... If you're looking at goalkeeper, I mean, Jonathan Cirola coming back. There's another answer to your question. Uh, otherwise, for Montreal, I'd say looking at what their needs, maybe a left back. I mean, they obviously should have probably been on the Didi and Abzi chain if they couldn't, but obviously that's too late now. But maybe look at, at, at some of the left backs currently in the league. Tough to think of a few. Because a lot of Kwasi them quasi Kwasi Poku. Poku is a shout. Maybe long term. Maybe needs a... I think he's... he's could have a lot of potential next year as a midfielder from forge at the end that's of, true but so, you never know never could know try him out never know could try him out that is indeed uh other that yeah i mean uh, a lot of options there uh otherwise for the whitecaps yeah they, they should definitely be looking at all positions center backs uh forward or midfield all depth really for the whitecaps nothing should be off the table if anything try to do some loan sells. like if you can try to buy a sean young and loan him back maybe if you don't think he's ready if you want him for the longer term uh, you know obviously you need some center back depth maybe make, make up for what you missed out with on Amir Didic and, and, and give him a call uh, try to get invest on some of those young players I think that would be my last point I think I'd love to see some MLS teams sign some of the 18 to 22 year old crowd and loan them back just so you can let, cool. let them develop but yeah. buy some of those u 21 minutes guys invest early invest early like if you're if you're Montreal 6, they've always had depth. issues at number 9. Maybe you call Di Rosario up and call and buy him and then loan Wubens him Pesillas. out. Wubens-Pasius as well, call him back, so
2: a lot of options there. How painful would that be for TFC fans to watch Di Rosario scoring goals for CF Montreal, can you imagine? I can, and it's kind of glorious, I'm not going to lie. That's all for today on the Northern Football Podcast. For Alexander Gange-Ruzik, Peter Galindo, I'm Ben Steiner. Thanks for tuning in to episode 93, and as always, up the NFP.